You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Somebody's coming. Toward the end of the war in Vietnam, an unusually high percentage of American servicemen suddenly manifested symptoms of psychosis. Most of them were in combat or slated for combat and had no prior history of mental disturbance. These facts, plus the epidemic scope of the problem and the controversial nature of the Vietnam War, led American authorities to wonder whether many, if not most, of the men were faking. Among its inmates was an astronaut who, during final countdown, had aborted a mission into outer space. Don't blame me. I told them not to operate. In case of accident, call a llama. What kind of bedside manner is that? Lieutenant Reno is adapting Shakespeare's plays for dogs. Labor of love, a fucking headache, but goddammit, somebody's got to do it. If God exists, then he's a fake, or more likely a foot. A giant, all-knowing, all-powerful foot. Can you prove there's a foot? There are some arguments from reason. Are those the things we use to justify dropping atomic bombs on Japan? What the fuck? It's psychodrama, Major. The inmates are playing the role of allied prisoners of war. Bullshit! We're their prisoners! Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Spike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also with us this week is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. This week we are talking about the 1979, maybe 1980 film from writer-director William Peter Blatty, The Ninth Configuration. Known at points as, and based on his novel, Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, the film stars Stacey Keach as Colonel Hudson Kane, a new psychiatrist at an unusual retreat for men who have cracked up during the Vietnam War. Also at this fog-shrouded castle is Captain Billy Cutshaw, an astronaut who freaked out before his mission to the moon. The two men are at odds about the world, especially around the question of faith. Now, we are going to be getting into some spoilers big time on this episode, and we're not just going to ruin this movie for you, but we're going to ruin a few others as well. Fight Club, The Sixth Sense, maybe even The Crying Game, for God's sakes. If you haven't seen those films, and you don't want anything ever spoiled for you ever in the world, turn off this podcast and come on back after you've completed them get some education god damn it we'll still be here and we'll be ready to talk about the ninth configuration heather when was the first time that you saw the ninth configuration and what did you think 
the first time I saw Night Configuration was, I want to say, about around like five or six years ago. I had heard of the film years before that, was kind of inspired to finally seek it out proper after watching a documentary on Joe Spinell, which featured some interviews with Jason Miller, where there's some great stories about the two of them uh, <laughs> raising some hell. <laughs> to be a fly on those walls when I saw it and my initial impression was like I knew going into it I was going to love it you know some films you just have that that gut feeling like you know this is going to be the one and yes it was absolutely the one it was hilarious in, in spots absolutely heartbreaking uh in others I think it's an, an incredibly important piece of cinema so I have a really weird relationship with William Peter Blatty in the sense that I <laughs> so I read the the novel of The Exorcist when I was in third grade, so I was eight, and read it under my desk, and I have never been so affected by anything since then. So it took me a few years until I got into horror movies to realize that he did anything other than write that novel. And when I finally got to see Exorcist 3, I was obsessed with it. It's my favorite movie in the series. And so that is what encouraged me to seek out the ninth configuration because I I had heard, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but I had heard a sort of misleading, sort of incorrect report that it was another like kind of unofficial Exorcist sequel. So I went into it having no idea what to expect and, you know, fell in love. I think I read about this one in Video Watchdog forever ago when they were reviewing the VHS. And this was another one of those. I I don't know how I knew that there were so many different versions of this, but it was one of those where I was afraid of watching this movie for the longest time because I didn't want to see the wrong version of it. And somehow, some way, I heard that there was a company called... Blue Dolphin that put out a version of this years ago that was supposed to be the approved version. So that was the one that I tracked down and watched and absolutely fell in love with. It is so wild, so many different tones to this movie. You already touched on that, Heather, and it just moves so many different places that I wouldn't expect. And yeah, the cast of this movie is amazing and the performance by our leads in here especially stacy keach just knocked me on my ass because stacy keach when i was growing up he was mike hammer he was the funny guy from those cheech and chong movies i just remember the whole scandal around his coke bust uh when he was being mike hammer he seemed to disappear for a lot of years and i never really realized just what an amazing actor he was until i went back and saw this saw fat city saw some uh, saw the uh, dion brothers and just was like wow this guy could really perform and this one to me is the pinnacle of if you want to see stacy keach at his best watch the ninth configuration yeah he's glorious i've always been a big fan of his too and just you know he's he's an actor that always delivers but i mean holy hell like this is this is i think anybody who's just used to stacy keach is like yeah sergeant sadinko and you know up in smoke or mike hammer or the dad on titus you know what whatever i think would be really pleasantly or will be really pleasantly surprised um because it's such an incredibly um i hate saying the word sensitive it sounds like an overused adjective but it's such a sensitive and in 
you know, performance where just, he, you know, you just look at his eyes and you instantly, you, you have a connection with this character of Colonel Kane. It's unforgettable. The whole film, though, is, and, uh, oh my God, sh- sh- shall we mention the cast before we go deep into the plot? Because the cast, if the cast doesn't, like, lose somebody to watch this film, I don't know what will. Yeah, holy shit. I mean... <laughs> Like, Jason Miller, I think, gets such an unfair reputation because people just think of him as Father Karras. And and here, he's so amazing. So him and Joe Spinell play off together. (laughs) They do. They're so great. (laughs) I mean, to the point where I almost was like, I wish there was, like, another movie that was just these two dudes (laughs) trying to conduct, like, Shakespeare plays with a cast of dogs. Or even, like, like a buddy cop movie with the two of them. If there's a heaven above, it will po- it will possess this movie. <laughs> I want hey, the buddy cop. <laughs> if, so Heather and I often will make jokes about what we would do if we had a time machine. And <laughs> if we find this time machine, we will definitely make them co-star in a movie together. When your most minor characters in the film, and I use that term loosely, when your most minor characters are being played by the likes of Tom Atkins, Robert Loggia... Moses Gunn. I mean, these are all heavy hitters, and they're relegated to the smaller roles. And you've got Stacey Keach, as I mentioned. You've got Scott Wilson just is amazing in this movie. A lot of people know Scott Wilson these days from his roles in CSI, where he was Catherine's father, Sam Braun, uh, known from The Walking Dead. That's where he's kind of making his bread these days. He has been in so many amazing things. He kicked off his career with In Cold Blood and really never looked back, but this is a chance where he really gets to put it on. I mean, he he isn't just Groucho Marx, but he's Harpo Marx and maybe even Chico thrown in for good measure. He is just firing on all cylinders in this film. I think everybody in this movie is firing on all cylinders, which is It also, I think, is one of the challenges of trying to sell someone on watching it because you don't want to tell them what the movie's really about. Or if you give them like a line plot synopsis and they start watching it, I think it's frustrating at first because you can't figure out where it's going. But it's also because they are literally all of them firing on all cylinders in every scene. And it's it's so intense. Let's just not forget Neville Brand as well. A man, a man so tough as nails that I, I literally, I have in my notes, he is literally made of nails. Um, <laughs> in this film, he definitely is. <laughs> it's just the way he barks out, you fucking weirdos. You know, like, <laughs> it's so great. And I I agree about the whole, I mean, we're going to, you know, we'll, we'll try and give a good synopsis here. But it, it you're right. It's hard because so there's so much going on in this film. And... But that's one of the things that's so rewarding about it is it really is one of those films that you need to, if you love it that first viewing, watch it two or three more times because there's going to be nuances and layers and and things you'll pick up on that you're going to just be like, oh, my God. And um, I love that. (laughs) And Ed Flanders without his pants. (laughs) (laughs) Ed Flanders, who I only knew as Dr. Donald Westfall on St. Elsewhere for the longest time. And so when I first saw him in this, I was like, is that the same (laughs) dude? By the time uh, St. Elsewhere came around, like, I don't think he's wearing a rug in 
ninth configuration, but he's he's lost his hair. Like he's he's rocking the the. Uh, I mean, he he still has hair, but he's got like the tonsure and that kind of stuff. But uh, and he's so serious in saying elsewhere, and to see him in this just cutting up all the time. But at the same time, another nuanced performance. And when you learn what's really going on in the ninth oh. configuration, and again, we will ruin that for you. When you finally learn what's happening, it just changes your whole appreci- appreciation of everything that has gone on before. On that second viewing, that third viewing, that fourth viewing, you get to see so much more of his performance now that you know what's actually going on. Which is wild that he, and by he I mean Blatty, is able to pull that off because when you don't know, it seems like it's just another character acting crazy. But the fact that you, so there, what we're referring to, there's a scene early on where Colonel Fell starts to cry and you can't figure out like he, he has to leave the room. So he's having this conversation with Kane. He leaves the room and he starts to cry and it makes no sense. And you think it's just, okay, this is another, another character who's supposed to be sane acting nuts, but no, you find out why. And it's devastating. The brilliance of having an actor like Ed Flanders, like having all of these actors is these, these are guys who are so good that they can go from being quirky and funny to all of a sudden just devastated. And, and they pull it off so well that you're, you know, you love these guys, you love a lot of these characters. And when you see them break down, when you see Ed Flanders break down, especially you just, Oh, it's hard. It is so hard. You do love them. And I, I think that's the thing that really makes it hard, but worth watching it three or four times because you get so attached to them. But I think at first you can't figure out why, because it seems like there's not a conventional plot. There's not conventional relationships or character developments, but really there is. It's just very well disguised. The film almost has what I would consider three different openings. You've got this San Antone opening where you have this song, which was originally used in uh, Rolling Thunder, which Barry DeVorzon did the soundtrack for Rolling Thunder. And basically, they kind of recycled. And this is another one of these things where like, everything I say has to have an asterisk at the corner to say, in the version that we watched, this is how it is. Because maybe in the original version when it came out, it didn't have this opening. Maybe in the one that you caught on home video it doesn't have this version but in the one that we watched it starts with this san antone opening which is this beautiful kind of schmaltzy countryish type song and really kind of sets this very sensitive mood that we're talking about and we get these beautiful shots of water and these soldiers in slow motion kind of going across this bridge and you've got scott wilson and he's being very quiet at this point and just very uh contemplative and uh you you have uh, shots of this castle that we're going to see throughout the film and how it's shrouded in clouds or fog and really kind of sets us up that way. And then we go to, well, after Scott Wilson gets up and goes to the window and he says, somebody's coming. And then we cut to what could be another opening of the movie, which is now here's the title sequence where we have this amazing shot. And it seems like it's almost a hundred percent process where you've got a rocket in the foreground and you hear these 
these voices where they're counting down and you have this great, again, Dvorak score just is really powerful at this moment. And the rather than the rocket going up to the moon, it's almost like the moon is meeting the rocket. It comes up uh, uh, from the horizon. Just very, very striking images here. And then you have Scott Wilson cracking up. This is when he's being pulled out of the rocket and he's screaming, crying and carrying on that there's nothing out there. And that's what I would consider opening two. And then opening three is kind of movie proper where we're introduced to this wild cavalcade of characters, these uh, all these men. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot about the other opening, which was the voiceover from Ed Flanders. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> there are so I many. I completely passed by it. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess maybe there's four openings there, or really three, and then the, the movie proper opens where we get to see all of these guys. But we have a voiceover from Ed Flanders that we just get once. I don't think we ever get him again giving a VO where he sets this whole thing up about how so many men were cracking up in Vietnam and they've put them into these uh, secret camps. And this is, I think the 18th one and they've hit, they've hidden them away in this thing. And they're trying to see if these guys are really faking or if they really are crazy and why, because some people were in stressful situations and other people weren't. So why have all of these guys suddenly gone mad during the end of the Vietnam War. It's so much to even talk about because even just giving that description, I'm sure anyone who hasn't seen the movie, their brain is probably scrambled already. Right, right. And this is the first five minutes of the movie. It's so wonderful, but so insane. And I feel like I've talked to people who have heard about the movie, but haven't seen it. And we're really hung up on this idea that because it's about these traumatized, insane Vietnam vets, they just figured it would be sort of trite and predictable. And I think that's really hard to escape in the last 10 or 20 years. Like when you hear that that's the plot of a movie, it's like, okay, I've seen that before. But like, no, you fucking haven't. The cool thing about the, the multi-intros is I it's setting up things for you tonally and aesthetically. As a viewer that, you're like, whoa, because, you know, you have like the, the sand and tone section, which is, is dreamy, but in a very melancholy kind of way. And then you have the rocket, which to me, the way that the moon looms over that and you hear his screaming was like a nightmare because it looks very, you know, artificial looking but you know what's going on and then you have sort of the more proper like okay we're here in real life or maybe you know between the flanders and then getting to meet all of the fellas as kane um is being driven to the uh, chateau we establish at one point scott wilson wakes up from that moon takeoff sequence so we have one scene where we are pretty sure that that was a dream or at least a memory and then even when Kane, when Stacy Keach is coming to the camp, he has a little dream. And this is abbreviated when you talk about the what goes on in the extended version of this. But at one point, he's in the back seat being driven to this camp. He closes his eyes and he sees these three crosses in the distance. And then we really know that we're in a William Peter Blatty film. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, what, what's even more brilliant is when he when he opens his eyes and kind of wakes up, he sees the group of bikers that are going to come into climactic kind of play uh, towards the end of the film. So you, you get a nice sort of illusion. That's why it's good to rewatch this movie. <laughs> well, otherwise, it makes no sense. Otherwise, right. it just seems like totally disjointed scenes that all are slammed up against each other. 
Well, even with those bikers, that guy who's kind of tied up in the back of their truck, who looks like he's maybe smoking a cigar, he's got something in his mouth, and he just seems like, what do you want from me? He's just (laughs) there, and the bikers are all cheering and laughing and carrying on, and this old dude's just like, yep, okay. Yeah, you know, wearing a, like a sweater. He looks like he they pulled him off of his armchair and put him into the the back of his truck. And I'm just like, what the hell is going on? And that's another moment of seriality that we have that just kind of adds to the dreamlike thing. I mean, this whole setting feels like a dream when you look at the castle. Everything is shrouded in fog. Everything, you know, it's raining almost the entire time through this movie. And that rain plays into uh, the Stacey Keach's character's memory because every time it starts to rain and you hear the rain, it starts to play into his memories and his flashbacks. So it's very interesting the way that that all plays out because once that rain is gone at the end of the film, once Wilson comes back to the chateau, there is no rain. There is no cloud. I mean, things have, have parted. Things have clarified. And the rest of the time, it's almost like this, I don't know, magical realism or something where clouds, the fog around the castle are kind of standing in for just how unclear things are. And I think that Blatty does a great job when it comes to this of this uh, making things unclear by having every single one of these, and I'll call them inmates or patients, Every single one of them is playing a different role. They all have their thing that they do. There's Moses Gunn, who when you see him, he's got uh, a letter written on his chest. I think it's an S. And he takes off his glasses and says, this is a job for Superman. Every single one of them has this alternate character that they're playing. Yeah, well, and there's a lot of a, a lot of creating kind of a different reality as coping mechanism, which which ultimately we will see, you know, revealed with Kane himself. But but you know, like even in the beginning, they're all playing that movie quote game where you know one guy shouts out one line, and yeah, I just love how wise they ask. It's like ah, treasure Sierra Madre, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so it's just immediately you're like oh these guys are fantastic <laughs> well that's another crazy element that's in both the book and the movie is that he has these kind of effortless cultural references but there are so damn many of them that you really have to kind of go over the movie a couple times to pick up on them all and he has this really cool balance where some of the references, especially the visual references, are from horror movies and gothic literature. But then the things that they say to each other, they tend to be all referencing like war movies or kind of gritty action movies. And I love that. Oh, it's 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 pulled off so beautifully, and it's it's funny because I know Mike, you um, had sent us a link to a New York Times review of this film from Janet Maslin. Uh, she was deeply deeply wrong, but I, you know, but yeah, you know, the one thing I would agree with her, she because she knows there's like a, thea- a theatricality to like some of the dialogue, and I mean, there are moments where I'm like, man, this would be kind of an amazing play if it was done correctly, though. I mean, with theater, you got to be a little, tr- you know, theater's tricky because you can make something really good turn into something really cheesy and hackneyed super quick but the rest of the review is horrible now the illusions were so great and you're right the majority of them were you know are more sort of like you know classic film and action film uh one of them that deviated a little bit from that that i loved and i think cutshaw wilson delivers this as saying that robert browning 
Robert Browning got the clap from Emily and Charlotte Bronte. <laughs> oh yeah, but that's even that's even sort of referencing Gothic literature. So it's like he kind of finds a way to wind it all back in there. But I love I forget I forget who does it. I think it might be Colonel Colonel Fell who refers to, <laughs> refers to Kane as Major Strasser at one point <laughs> from Casablanca after they put on the Gestapo uniforms. But it's just it just kind of rolls off his tongue, like no effort. And and some of it, you know, you know, ranges from really poetic and and just like just you know, a line can cut through and just devastate you, and then some of it's hilarious. And just all the touches, because like one thing I actually found really weirdly poignant is when Kane is arriving, all the guys start singing "You Are My Sunshine," which initially seems funny, but I've I've always found that song to be kind of like when you think about sad. it. And of course, it's like doubly sad for me because I I watched a documentary on Roland S. Howard and he talked about how how sad and depressing that song was. So I'm just like, oh God, he's right. <laughs> but it's it is it is such a, a bittersweet song, and it, it definitely kind of another reference to sort of the ride you're in for with this with the rest of this film. What I like the way that they use audio in this section with those all that that dialogue that we're talking about the movie quotes and all these things there are moments where we get to see the characters say things but there are so many moments where just everything is being done in voiceover and we have all these layers of sound going on with the call and response almost from one inmate one patient to another and then in the meantime you do have neville brand as groper who is trying to maintain order in a world of chaos and just them constantly picking on groper throughout the entire thing is fantastic and just the the creativity of the insults is just amazing something we haven't talked about yet but i'm sure we will more is that hamlet had a really big influence on the book and the the script for the movie and Shakespeare in general had a huge influence on Blatty. And it made me feel like that was his inspiration for a lot of the dialogue because Hamlet, you have to read it a lot of times to get all of these, but there are so many hilarious insults that are sort of slyly delivered in scenes that seem more serious than they actually are. If, if you're not like familiar with <laughs> Elizabethan slurs, which, I mean, why would you be? <laughs> Polonius offers to use his daughter to get information from Prince Hamlet. Then we go into Act 2, Scene 2. Polonius, do you know me, my lord? Hamlet, excellent, well, you're a fishmonger. Polonius, not I, my lord. Hamlet, then I would you were so honest a man. Fishmonger means a broker of some type. And in this setting would mean like a pimp, like Polonius is brokering out his daughter for money, which he is doing for the king's favor. This allows you to see that Hamlet is not as crazy as he's claiming to be and intensifies the animosity between these two characters. He does that so well here in a way that is really surprising and in a way that I think speaks to his talent as a comic writer, which I don't think most people think of him as. I mean, despite his partnership with Blake Edwards. No, people forget that. People forget, you know, I mentioned Groucho Marx earlier. People forget that Groucho Marx kind of gave Blatty his his start in a weird way. (laughs) That Blatty went on to You Bet Your Life. (laughs) 
as what does he a, call him an arabian Arab? prince <laughs> he's an arabian prince <laughs> yes in my country you can have uh, four wives four, four wives four, that yes. makes it very nice that gives you one for each season yes and he won enough money where he could quit his day job and become a full-time writer so i think without that we wouldn't have the things that we have when it comes to what Blatty was able to give us. Yeah, and like I'm trying to remember, I've got the book over on my bookshelf. He wrote, he wrote like a comic um, response. Like he wrote a comic book of The Exorcist, and I'm trying to remember what it was. It was almost along the lines of like Exorcist Three People Zero or something like that. I know that was the genre, <laughs> yeah, but I'm like, trying to remember. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to remember what that one was. But yeah, it's like he was a very, very funny guy, and it wasn't just horror for him. And he is able to mix all of that stuff together in the ninth configuration, and he's able to just pull the rug out from under you as well. And that kind of brings me to him, his actual appearance in the film. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) It's so good. And again, I mean, he's basically – there are so many times where he's handing you – Here's what the movie is. And when he shows up pretending to be a doctor <laughs> and is talking oh. to Kane and uh is is and he is basically and then when Fell comes up, when the Ed Flanders character comes up, we are now doubting is this guy really a doctor? We have already started to doubt every single character is what they say that they are, and that is crucial to this film. It's so, so amazing I love that he sets that up so early in the film, and and in a scene, a dialogue scene that's maybe ninety seconds total, and you're so disoriented by the time it's over. <laughs> And that's also where we get Christian and Krebs, uh, Krebs being played by Tom Atkins, who are Kane's keepers, but they never let on that they are Kane's keepers. So just to watch their interaction, go back and see this the second time, and to watch them interacting with Kane and to see all the things that are going on, you suddenly see that their body language makes a lot more sense or that it plays in a different way now that you know what's going on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Atkins especially, just like the, you know, I love the shot where he's, you know, you know, shutting the door like Kane's right. in his office and everybody at this point's kind of like tucked in for the night. And, you know, again, this is another actor where, you know, we have some listeners will probably just know him from like night of the creeps, you know, or Halloween three, which are both awesome. And he's great and everything, but like, it's cool to see him in something where he's a lot, a lot quieter and more understated. And, uh, it just, ah, oh, he's so great. Not to jump immediately back to Hamlet, but one of the sort of, threads in the movie is that one of the characters reno so jason miller's character reno is trying to stage a production of hamlet cast with all dogs <laughs> and he keeps he keeps bringing up rosencrantz and guildenstern kane's two keepers basically are rosencrantz and guildenstern they just don't have the same sort of like comedic talkative roles it's so brilliant even to the point where Flanders is there on the phone talking to somebody about Kane, though you don't know he's necessarily talking about Kane. And he looks down at the skull on his desk. Yes. Don't look at me. I told them not to operate. And you're just like, okay, there's another Hamlet reference. You know, there's the alas poor York scene right there. Even the fact that Hamlet has the whole play within a play sequence that reveals important things to the characters. The same thing happens here. 
Yeah, and there's so much play within this. I mean, the, you mentioned the Gestapo uniforms. At one point, Kane decides, I'm going to indulge all of these men's fantasies. And Moses Gunn, who is wearing a cheap t-shirt with an, a letter on it, I'm going to get him a full Superman outfit. The guy who is trying to pass through walls with a sledgehammer, <laughs> he's punishing the atoms for not aligning in the right way so that, so that he can walk through walls, the George DiCenzo role. He buys him a wetsuit so that he can go through the atoms of water because they will align a little bit better for him. And Robert Loggia, who thinks that he is a Venusian astronaut, uh, he, uh, or a Martian astronaut, I can't remember. He gets him a rocket pack and a spacesuit. you know, it's just all of these things. Like they have a scene where they're, getting these orders in Washington of all the things that Kane needs in order to indulge these men's fantasies to the point where Kane and uh, Groper put on these Nazi uniforms so that the men can play the great escape and they buy them uh, a jackhammer so they can jackhammer through the floor. Which is so amazing. I mean, because in Hamlet, the play within a play, I think it's called the mousetrap and it's, it's a murder mystery. So here it's, a war drama that they're reenacting, which is, it just, it doesn't have the crazy scene where they make themselves passports out of like jam and scrap paper, but, but he really goes for it. Speaking of Loja and role play, like there's, there's a really great scene <laughs> before all of this where he, he's in blackface singing Al Jolson's uh, there's a rainbow around my shoulder and it's such a weird scene because he's just given his all. Moses Gunn is just standing on the side, just kind of looking, you know. Shaking his head. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> and and it's so, it's just so true. It's, it's just such a tremendously weird scene and great because it's like, you, you, you know, this guy isn't doing this to be racist. He's just like, I'm Al Jolson. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna sing my heart out and you know have blackface on. But seeing Robert Loja in this film again, yeah. another actor we're used to seeing kind of I think more as like a heavy, and he's great. You know, it's, it's so crazy that I I still can't believe that Robert Loja was like. Can you? I know you said earlier you wish you were a fly on the wall for some of these things, but can you really imagine someone approaching Robert Loja, especially as we know him from something like lost highway approaching him and saying, okay, now you're going to put on blackface and you're going to sing and you're, you're just going to go for it. <laughs> oh my God. And he does. And he, he is does <laughs> giving it the Robert Loja gusto. It's <laughs> And, and that's the, that's one of the many many treats about this film though is seeing some of these actors i mean like you know we mentioned joe spinell who um i read his online name, his name spinell in the film yeah. <laughs> well i from what from what i understand the story is spinell basically talked his way into the film like he's not really i haven't read the full script that you sent mike i've spot i've spot read some of it is that correct is there no spinell in the there's yeah no there's spinell. no spinell i mean uh, all all the names have changed or a lot of the names have changed, but there's no, like the, the, the guy who ends up being Reno, the, the Jason Miller character, he does not have the helper that the Spinell character uh, would eventually become. And so, yeah, he was that, that role is just not. Oh my so God. From what I was reading, Spinell was up for the Reno role played by Jason Miller and he didn't get the role, but 
like you were saying, talked his way into the movie anyway. <laughs> and apparently he and Jason Miller were BFFs and would would go get ridiculously drunk and cause all sorts of trouble in, I think this was filmed in Budapest? Yeah, because PepsiCo was funding this movie and it had to be shot in Hungary so that they could open a bottling plant there and they wanted to pump some money into the country or something. Some weird like thing. Some tax shelterish type of thing. So, uh, yeah. It makes you miss the Years Iron before Curtain. Before Caitlyn Jenner solved <laughs> the, the world's problems with Pepsi, they were trying to do it this way. In that documentary on Joe Spinell, which uh, I think it's literally just called like the Joe Spinell story, and it's a supplement on the Maniac DVD. Uh, there's this great story that Jason Miller tells about. They they actually those two got arrested, but Spinell just like charmed the living dickens out of the guards because they were like they recognized him from The Godfather, and he was you know, and you could just see this image of Spinell just kicking his heels back, and be like, oh, let me tell you about The Godfather. He's perfect at everything. He that man is, was like an alchemist because even in terrible things like National Lampoon's movie Madness, which yes, oh, I, watched, oh, I watched. Oh God, Heather! <laughs> it was horrible, but Joe Spinell was in it. That's why I did it for Joe. I <laughs> it's all for you, Joe. <laughs> yes, I think it's almost impossible to do like a straight talk on the on a film like this because there's just there's there's so much going on, but it's not. The beauty of it is it's it's a chaos that is expertly woven together, like and uh, and that amazes me, especially mixing in humor with really serious material. That that is fucking chancy. That is such a, a risk because you know you could do comedy well and you can do drama well. People that mix them like it's like it's like doing really good jazz. You know, <laughs> like you got to be a Miles Davis. Or a Charlie Parker to pull this shit off, or Coltrane, you know, not Kenny G. This is also the problem of these sort of average, like, high school conversations that you have about Hamlet. People talk about it as this really overwrought tragedy about this guy in an existential crisis. And he is in an existential crisis, but that's by no means all there is to the play, which is what makes it great. And I think he really mined a lot of those elements. Like you have all the balances, like but not only between different genres, but every scene has all the tones in it. It's not like one scene is comic and another one is devastating. They're all there in each scene, which I don't even understand how no one watches this movie. Why? Oh, I know. Well, especially because you brought up earlier the the sort of the the aforementioned connection or you know people talk about the connection between this and the exorcist which yeah it's it's not a sequel there is kind of a loose because i yeah. believe because cutshaw you know i'm assuming everybody listening to this has seen the exorcist <laughs> though if you haven't seen fight club or <laughs> the crying game, i mean if you haven't seen fight club don't waste your time but if you haven't seen the exorcist <laughs> what year were you born in <laughs> yeah seriously wa- li- yeah watch the exorcist and then resume this podcast it's when she's sick and she comes downstairs and she pisses on the floor and she says you're gonna die up there i Uh, which i think is for me the most maybe not scary i don't know if that's the eerie maybe the most eerie scene in the movie because it's so it, it doesn't have the sort of extreme range that this movie does but it's a scene where 
you don't really see it coming. And if you, even if you know it's an exorcism movie and there's going to be something scary happening, you don't expect her to piss on the floor. Blanks and Father were pretty comfortable up there, at least compared to the Gemini and Mercury programs where they were tight for space. You see, we've got about 210 cubic feet, so we can move around. Listen, if you ever go up there again, will you take me along? <laughs> what for? First missionary on Mars. <laughs> I think we've got a guest. You're gonna die up there. Reagan? I mean, I don't have children, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe they do that, but... I don't know. I'm grateful to have my cats right now. <laughs> I'm like, they do, they do puke on the floor, but they at least don't tell me I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Don't give them any ideas. <laughs> and, you know, in addition to it, obviously not being a proper sequel to The Exorcist. I, I also think in some ways it's an unfair comparison as a whole, because The Exorcist is brilliant as it is. I mean, the, the, the plot is considerably, I think, a lot more simple than what's going on in the ninth configuration. Um, though I do want to, I actually want to bend both of um, Mike and Sam, your ears on this, is one thing that hit me rewatching this is, you know, do you guys think that there was any sort of correlation with the whole, like, you know, you have possession themes, obviously, in The Exorcist, and we have mental illness and madness. In fact, there's a great line where I believe Kane says to Cutshaw, most people think madness, that evil grows from madness, but madness grows from evil. And so just, devastating. Oh God. Just, yeah. One of, one of many just like, Oh, just, you know, just hits you right in the gut and the heart. But it made me think too, it's just how like, you know, in real life, you know, a lot of people have been treat, you know, have been exercised quote unquote. And I mean, there, there are cases where kids have died because of basically abuse. Cause they were, you know, they were possessed by demons. And in fact, they were mentally ill. You can look at The Exorcist, Exorcist 3, and Ninth Configuration as this trilogy that deals with these themes of confession, performance, and madness, because they all have a lot of hospital scenes. They all have somebody is performing what could either be an illness or what could be madness. And it just, the way that he uses them in sort of similar but different ways in all three movies is amazing. Man, yeah, yeah, because those are all three great films. Yeah, because I don't, I don't think Exorcist three. I think now finally it kind of gets enough love, but it felt like for a long time it wasn't talked no. about enough. People just assumed that it was some bullshit sequel, and I think what Mike was talking about earlier, how there are so many different versions of the ninth configuration. I think Exorcist three suffered a similar fate, where they cut a bunch of things, they shot some different endings, and it finally got restored as that version called Legion, which is what the novel is called, though I, I haven't read it, but need to. And it's, I don't know, it's so frustrating to me that somebody who could be so successful and, you know, have this amazing book that gets turned into probably the most classic horror movie of all time could have his other two films fucked with so badly. It's so mean. I think that the studio fucked around with Legion, with Exorcist 3, quite a bit. 
And I want to say that Blatty himself, I don't think that he was his own worst enemy on this. I think that there was a lot of fuckery going on when Ninth Configuration first came out. But in years hence, he was going through, like, even on the audio commentary for the DVD, he's like, oh, which version is this again? <laughs> he's like trying to remember you know, which one it is. And it's just like, there. Uh, it's Mark Kermode is the one who's uh, uh, interviewing Blatty during it. And he's just like, you know, oh, well, this wasn't in this version, but it was in this one he's like oh really you know it's like yeah you you've really you've messed around with this and then even at the end of the commentary he's like yeah i'm still thinking i might do oh some more no that's <laughs> oh i that is one of my biggest pet peeves like i get it if you tried to make a movie like silver globe the Zhuavsky film you try to make a movie the movie is taken away from you and you get a chance later on to finish it and release the version that you wanted to release originally. Great. No qualms with that. But directors like right. fucking Ridley Scott with Blade Runner, like how many versions do we need? <laughs> like there's gotta be a point where you move on and you make another movie and you stop changing the same movie. Like that's not a thing. The only thing I appreciate about Ridley Scott doing that is that he then turns around and allows all those versions to be released. Now, that's true. It's a cash cow to do that. But at least he's not George Lucas, where he's like, no, the version that I wanted is the version that you can see. And you're not allowed to see the other versions. But George Lucas (laughs) is gross. So at least Jar Jar Binks is one of the inmates here at the Chateau. Misa Day starting pretty Oaky day with a brisky morning munchie. Misa here. Misa getting very, very scared. Mike, if you were not my friend, I would slap you with a glove, sir, for even making that joke. Oh. But Jar Jar would fit into no. this film. No, he wouldn't. No, he doesn't is... fit into any movie. He's an abomination. He actually... So much duality happening in this film that is just amazing i mean just even the name kane i mean kane being a stand-in for adam and eve's son kane just going by a different spelling and then that he goes by two names by hudson kane and by vincent kane and i love that part where ed flanders calls him vincent and he kind of recognizes it but then doesn't recognize it and he's like oh no you reminded me of the painter well i always wondered why and i'm sure he's addressed this in an interview somewhere that i haven't read but so he's got damien Karras in the exorcist he's got kane in this film and then he has kinderman in exorcist 3 and it's like you want to chill with the alliteration there buddy like i love i like it (laughs) (laughs) actually i think jar jar binks was an exorcist here but don't quote me hey hey there let's not say things we can't take back about exorcist 2 i I happen to like that movie no, it it has its own charms, and that soundtrack is uh, like the oh. scene where 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 Richard Burton gets tomatoes thrown at him. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> okay, that's yeah, no, that's fair. That's. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it's anywhere near on the level of Exorcist Three or the Ninth Configuration. It's wonderful in sort of a tragic and terrible way, but. <laughs> The reason that this gets passed over or got passed over is because people assumed Exorcist 3 was going to be terrible and they assumed this probably was connected in the same way. And I mean, I know this ninth configuration came first, but it's just very unfair. 
a film as good as the ninth configuration, and certainly a film um, that is as good about not giving you any easy answers. Films that typically do that, usually nobody knows how to market them. Certainly not studios, uh, you know, big studios. And, uh, you know, even though I, I think this film did get, like, I believe the film, it, it got nominated for a Golden Globe. And one, I believe. There were, aside from, you know, She Who Must Not Be Named, there were a lot of <laughs> a lot of critics who did like it, but I don't envy any of the marketers whose job it was to present this. To, and, like, Heather and I have talked about this a lot in the past privately, but my favorite movies tend to be movies like this that are just impossible to digest in one sitting or that can't really be reduced down to a plot point. But on the other hand, how do you convince people to take some of their valuable time and money and watch them? Yeah, it's it's a it's a sticky wicket. I mean, that's um because most people because <laughs> most people aren't like I mean I think the three of us and I'm I'm sure some of the listeners are definitely you know we're all people that you know have always kind of gravitated towards like what is this you know anything that seems that's not going to be easy to digest and it certainly gets overlooked too. That's hopefully you know we can write the wrong write some of that wrong with this episode, which is you know Mike. I'm so glad. You know, you picked it and, and have us on. One of the scenes, and I should have mentioned this earlier, but one of the things that actually pulled me to watching this film, in, in addition to, you know, of course, Joe Spinell, and just the, the overall, just like, it just seemed like a, like up my alley, was reading, uh, I read a piece about it where they mentioned the scene where one of um, the visions is an astronaut in space, you know, with, you know, with the classic sort of, you know, image of an astronaut on the moon holding the American flag. And then the camera pulls back and there's Christ crucified. It's terrifying. That image is so powerful. I mean, oh, it's, there's something just so, so dark and just so compelling, especially just the, the massive amount of juxtaposition you have going on between a space age classic Americana image on top of it being like a space image mixed in with one of the most iconic uh, artistic well it's obviously not a piece of art it's like a, yeah actual Christ on the cross thing of religion yeah, but but I think it definitely our understanding of what Christ on the cross would have looked like comes from centuries of art so I think it's mm -hmm. fair to say that I mean, just seeing that scene, I mean, I could see that scene over and over again, and it's still just going to be like, you know, whoa, you know, <laughs> it's that it's voiceover. A it's, it's weird for me because as, as someone who's a pretty extreme atheist, the visual is so affecting in a way that other religious themes in horror movies are not for me. And I, it's like, I can't quite wrap my brain around it, but it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier with how Stacy Keach is able to convey so much just through facial expression. It's, it's this simple chilling scene that tells you everything you need to know about, and, and you find this out at the end, but it tells you everything you need to know about who Cutshaw is and the source of his madness. It reminded me a lot of 2001 when they find the monolith on the moon and it sends a signal out to Jupiter like, you guys have made it to this point. You've made it to the moon. We know you're advanced enough, so we're going to send this signal out to Jupiter and take you to the next step. That 
notion is what this reminded me of when he turns around and sees Christ on the cross there. It just felt like we have made it to that next step, which is is bizarre because obviously Christianity is such a throwback. But to be able to mix the science and the religion and then even to be able to because we haven't even touched on religion in this film. And there is such a huge amount of religious discussion in this movie and it flows naturally because it it flows with so much to do with the horrors of war and why these guys might have cracked up or not. And to go back to the Hamlet thing, are they playing crazy? Are they not crazy? Or is being crazy the only way that they can escape those horrors? Is that the most sane choice is to be crazy? And that speech from Jason Miller is just amazing when it comes to that. Some Shakespearean scholars say that when Hamlet is pretending to be crazy, he really is crazy, correct? That's right. Other Shakespearean scholars say that when Hamlet is pretending to be nuts, he really isn't nuts, it's an act. Please give me your opinion. I would like to hear yours first. Ah, to a psychiatrist. That's class. <laughs> you get the feeling that you've been trapped in a car wash for about three Pretty. This ring is a... Why don't you go inoculate a fucking armadillo, fell? No, really, I'm, uh, I'm listening. I'm terribly interested. One river Your interests are coextensive with Nero's ass on Sunday mornings. Heavy concept, Frankie. Jesus. Now listen. Now, Colonel, considering how Hamlet is acting, is he really and truly crazy? Yeah, no. You're both wrong. Now think what happens. First, his father dies. Then his girl leaves him flat. Then there's an appearance by the father's ghost. Bad enough. Then the ghost tells him he was murdered. And by whom? By Hamlet's uncle, who recently married Hamlet's mother. Now that, by itself, is a hell of a hang-up, because Hamlet liked his mother but then we're agreed Hamlet's insane no he's not he is pretending but if Hamlet hadn't pretended to be crazy he really would have gone crazy you see Hamlet isn't psycho he's hanging on the brink a little shove, a little teensy, eensy, little eensy push, and the kid's gone. Bananas whacked out. So his unconscious mind makes him do what keeps him sane, namely acting like he's nut. You see, because acting crazy is a way to let off steam, a way to get rid of your fucking aggressions, a way to get rid of your fears and your terrors. If I did... What Hamlet does in this play, they'd lock me up, they'd put me in prison, they'd punish me, sure. But him, Prince Royal Garbage Mouth, gets away with murder, and why? Because nuts are not responsible. Meantime, the crazier Hamlet acts, the more he indulges himself, the healthier he gets. Yes, I think I'm waiting. I think I agree with your theory. Yes! There! You see? 
Do you understand that now, you dumb, stupid idiot? From now on, we do the scene my way. And this whole thing of them layering on this religious discussion, again, it doesn't feel like it comes out of left field. It just feels so natural to everything that's going on with the rest of Which I think is the real achievement, at least for me as a viewer, is normally I would be very off-put by not not a philosophical debate in a movie, but by some sort of preachy conversation about, okay, here's why I think God exists, or here's why I think God doesn't exist, which Kane and Cutshaw have several of these conversations. And it's so emotionally impacting that I, I don't even think we could do it. Like we could talk about it for three hours, just their conversations. And I don't think it would do it justice in the same way as if you just you know, watch the film three times in a row, like we keep saying. A lot of films that typically will have like religious dialogue within, especially if you have one character who's saying, you know, I don't believe in God, look at the evil in this world, which is where Cutshaw is coming from. And then you have Cain who talks about faith and just how, well, if you think God doesn't exist because there's evil in the world, well, what about the fact that there's also good and there's, and there's love, like selfless love. Usually when films have like, two kind of opposing voices it's going to be either a really terrible like hallmark kirk cameron kind of affair (laughs) (laughs) you you know what i mean it's typically it's going to be something that's so arch and so just blatant like ooh, you know atheist bad christian good and it's like you know there's no there's and you want to club yourself like a baby seal the brilliance of of blatty's writing and these performances is that it doesn't, nothing's treating you as a viewer like you're dumb. It's not treating you like a child and dumbing down any of the themes. Uh, if anything, there's a, a really good acknowledgement of how complicated life is, how complicated the human condition is, and certainly how complicated uh, things like faith and belief can be in a world where perfectly good men are put in extreme situations like war and end up doing some really horrible things, which we, we find out ends up being the case of Cain. The reason that I love Blatty so much as a writer and a filmmaker is all of his films are about, and I'm including The Exorcist in this, all of his films are about characters who are understanding how to process and overcome trauma. And I think this is maybe the most eloquent or graceful of the three in the sense that it takes it at face value and and it doesn't say that you have to believe one thing or the other and even though Cutshaw you could argue that at the end Cutshaw finds his faith again but that's not even the important part it's not about religious morality or a belief in God it's about this ability to move past something terrible that's happened to you and or something terrible that you've done And the fact that he uses these kind of sacrificial killings at the end of The Exorcist, at the end of Exorcist 3, and at the end of this film, they don't feel trite. It's like even though he kind of uses the same formula, it doesn't feel trite in any way. It's impacting in all three. Because once you get to the scene, which to keep the audience, yes, spoiler alert once again, (laughs) but you know. Yeah, I think we're past that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you get to the climax where basically. Cutshaw uh, has found out, and it's been revealed to us that Kane is, in fact, not Hudson Kane. 
But he's Vincent Kane, a.k.a. Killer Kane, who massacred, you know, a lot of people. I think they mentioned at least 10 men and he decapitated a boy. And it constantly and there's there's really brilliant allusions to this that slowly again, this is why you want to watch this two or three times, because at first you're just like, that's weird. What's what is this alluding to? And then finally, you're like, oh, shit. And Kane has to go rescue Cutshaw, who's basically being bullied and abused. And at one point, there's implications of oral rape is how I took that. Yes. Yeah. And he ends up fucking Richard Lynch. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one that thought that. I thought I was really no. sick for thinking that. Well, but, especially because, okay. you know, quick side note on Richard Lynch's uh, partner, uh, his biker buddy who was played. I think he's just credited as cycle. Yeah, second cyclist. Uh, Which, uh, why are they credited as cyclists? Like they're <laughs> they're not. It makes you think that they're like. <laughs> I'm about to hop on their bikes and go on some kind of like cross country marathon. Like they're bikers. Yes, they're bikers. They're not cyclists. The pub court in Montrouser Lane. <laughs> well, they're not in the Tour de France. They uh, like to go on a rape and killing spree across the land. I'm, but... Which makes it sound like like one of those 60s hammer films the suspense movies before they started making like the horror movies that they became known for i think there are a few of those that involve some sort of stranger on a bicycle going across the french countryside (laughs) so it could happen (laughs) but it doesn't in this film Oh, no, sad, sad. Well, it, probably not sadly because the film's perfect, though. This is a subgenre that maybe should be returned to in the modern era. Uh, I noticed he was, I was got this like very repressed homosexual vibe from him between him. At one point, he kisses Cutshaw and then punches him, which is a yes. classic, a classic repressed mook move you know being like you know hey you know i ain't i ain't gay you know he touched me <laughs> or something. you know it just seemed like that kind of guy he's i was rocking- just trying to show him who's boss yeah yeah <laughs> um he's rocking some some pretty hardcore guy liner for a biker <laughs> yeah. yeah and there are some movements that he does with the way that he holds himself and everything where i was just like yeah that's well a little and richard lynch you because at one point they just show you know first biker uh, while you can hear richard lynch you know basically about to orally rape cut shot and the guy almost he looks slightly turned on like it's like oh yeah and they look so turned on for the whole scene yeah i mean the guy lighter that's still to this day i'm like whoa i've never i you know (laughs) well which is amazing because they used him they used steve sandor as the image on the british poster where it almost looks like that uh, a fade to black movie poster, where, but it's him. It's it's almost a little bit of uh, Clockwork Orange too, where he's got the guy liner going on, uh, you know, uh, coming out either side, and he's got his switchblade up, and he's the most prominent part of the poster, even more than Stacy Keach. So just imagine seeing that poster and going to that movie and just sitting there going. And where going, the hell is that guy, you know, because it looks like a slasher. Like, okay, film or so something. this is not Psychomania two, but with this with this whole scene, which I still find this whole scene so hard to watch. Like it, it really, is. oh, it's it, it like I just feel that like sinking stone and the and the gut feeling with it. But when when finally you have that moment where where Kane snaps and he ends up 
basically kicking a lot of ass and killing a lot of ass incredibly efficiently. The thing I love about that is this, that any other movie, that's the scene where the audience is cued to go like, yeah, hell yeah, you know, and there's a little part of you that's glad just to see like the oral rape and the, you know, them being assholes stop. But then at the same time, this character, you know how fragile he is and you know how good his internal core is like he's a good man you know because he has a conscience you know it's yeah if anybody has enough of a conscience to feel haunted by something they've done then they're they're all right you know they're human but you're like oh shit what you know you know it's not gonna lead anything good for him after this this you know not not sad you can see and again props to stacy keach who is amazing you can see the moment in his face where they push him past the point of no return. And you can see the look on Scott Wilson's face where Cutshaw understands what's happened. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just that somebody's come to defend him and rescue him. It's he can see the sacrifice being made at that point. Making me sad just to talk about it. (laughs) And it's such a, turn the other cheek moment but you never get that and you never get that moment where jesus just goes around and kills a ton of people (laughs) i mean there's that scene in the temple where he's you know breaking up shit and all that but you never see him take a woman (laughs) throw her against the wall so hard that her the back of her skull breaks open and you get that little trail of blood as she goes down the wall i mean i think that would make jesus a lot more appealing should be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of Do you know about Viking Jesus? When the Romans were trying to convert Northern Europe, they had their own Christian marketing campaign where they kept trying to sell Christianity on Northern European tribes was not working. And so finally they started to, (laughs) they started to basically repurpose Christ as Viking Jesus. And they sort of merged him with Odin so that he was still a sacrificial figure who, you know, hung on this tree and then was resurrected, but he's also a warrior. And so that version of Jesus definitely cracked some ladies skulls. Christianity did some really great marketing. I mean, the way that they took over the vernal equinox, the way that they took over the winter solstice, and just all of these moments, you know, I mean, reading the Book of the Dead versus the Bible and just like, oh, yeah, oh, look at this uh, child born of a virgin. Okay, this is interesting. I, I must remind us, too, of one of the other greatest interpretations of Jesus, which is, of course, Klaus Kinski's oh. uh, Jesus Christ, Erlo- <laughs> I think Erlosa is my, your German's better than mine, Sam. Am I saying that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> where he, where he, <laughs> where some guy starts audience correcting him about that wasn't Christ. And, he, and Klaus says something effectively, you're right. If Jesus was here, he would smack your stupid face. <laughs> Klaus and I, Kinski, the Jesus we didn't get, but the Jesus we deserve. <laughs> right? 
that's yes. I I probably would have actually enjoyed church as a child if it was. If well, no, maybe not. Never mind. I just fully thought out that. <laughs> yeah. No. Let's dial that back a minute, Heather. <laughs> Never mind. But uh, <laughs> but but that's but but speaking of cries, there's so there is so much. You know, I mean, because Cain ends up basically being he martyrs himself. I, this is the only time I've ever done a podcast where I seriously was like, I hope I don't get like emotional in like an overly sensitive way, you know, and that because this film is just it's that it's that heavy and it's that good. But the thing that was so striking to me is like, you know, because Cutshaw when he realizes what, what Kane has done, that he is, you know, he's killed himself um, and he carries the body, oh. you know, downstairs. And it's totally like a replica of the Pieta. And it's like, Oh my God. And it's, but it's again, like everything else, this film, it's done in a way that it doesn't feel like, Oh, of course it's done in a way where you're just like, Oh, and the fact that you keep hearing various characters all throughout the film say, Jesus Christ. Like my favorite being Neville Brand, of course. Of course. <laughs> He's got that whole whiskey grandpa veteran tinge whiskey to his grandpa voice. voice. <laughs> oh man, his face, his face is a national monument. I mean, it is just amazing to see that and to see that that moment we're talking about how when you watch this film the second, third, fourth time, there's that weird moment right towards the beginning when Kane comes out and there's the soldier who's, who's punishing the atoms of the wall with the sledgehammer. And when he takes the hammer and, and, and uh, Groper is trying to correct that soldier and Kane is just like, don't you do it? Don't, you know, don't correct this guy. And Groper just gives this really strange reaction where he just looks like shit scared and just starts backing away from him. The first time you watch what it, you're like, happening? why the hell is he reacting like that? Yeah. And, but my God, just to watch his face in that scene and, oh, and then the scene, I mean, and again, going from that moment to later on when he's talking about those ugly women <laughs> that Cutshaw has, in, <laughs> has written that letter to. I, I, uh, I love that. So, especially when he, so good. <laughs> And he's like, they're goddamn ugly. <laughs> Which is not. So the first, I still vividly remember the first time I saw this. He's so upset when he's telling him about the letter that when he says, like, they're goddamn ugly, that's not where I saw the scene going in my head. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> he's mad because he sent the letters right. to ugly women? <laughs> <He's> yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that he called them up they sounded good on the phone and he invited them to the castle and now they're coming they but they're nice all goddamn ugly <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which, it's, it's such a great moment because especially if you go back and rewatch, because it, it really makes you realize how I don't want to say how devious Cutshaw is but just how kind of bored and tormented yes. Cutshaw is and it's like he can't be alone with himself the way some of the other crazy characters can. He just has to cause chaos in his general environment, but with these schemes that are just so elaborate. <laughs> Another scene that I want to point out real quick is, uh, that happens between uh, Neville Brand and Stacey Keach, where this is the moment that 
for me, just shows how amazing Stacy Keach is, is that moment where Brand comes in and he's so pissed off about having to wear that SS uniform for that great yes. escape play that they're doing. And we start off with Kane doing what he does. I mean, Stacy Keach in this performance, it's almost like he's on Thorazine oh, yeah. throughout this whole movie. and. Just gives us very calm. I am, this is called psychodrama. And then the way that he builds, and he goes from zero to crazy in six seconds. And it is one of the most breathtaking things to see the way that his eyes are bugging out of his head by the end of this little speech that he does. Why should I help their fun? I'm not a psychiatrist. It's a goddamn chicken shit crazy idea. Jesus. Jesus Christ, man. Why don't you love somebody just a little? Why don't you help somebody? Help them. Help, for the love of Christ. You green-soaked, caterpillar-torturing bastard. You're going to wear that uniform? Sleep in it? Bathe in it? Try to take it off and you'll die in it? Is that clear? Where did this come from? And that just is so much the character that you don't see. And that really is, again, one of those moments that you just go, oh, my gosh, when you see it the second time or when you realize what's been going on, it makes so much more sense. But, wow, this is the beast that's been locked inside uh, of this Well, guy. and especially the way that, you know, I love the fact that he, he you know, early on yells yells to him, why don't you love someone just a little? And it, and, and that's uh, not a, a sentence you'd expect in a typical, like, oh, someone's getting snappy, you know, or anything like that. And it just, <laughs> and it's another, it's another great peek into Kane as a character and as a human. And it, and it's again, another moment where it just, it does hit you because you're just like, God, this, you know, this man is good. There's something inherently so good in him that has been just fucked with. The moment you realize what his aims are. I think for me, it's the scene where Reno comes in and he starts talking about his ridiculous Hamlet production and he's got these dogs, which it's a really funny scene, but Kane gets this look on his face. So Reno is talking about how Hamlet, and, and we've mentioned this already, but Reno is talking about how Hamlet isn't really crazy, but he's acting crazy in an insane world to prevent himself from going actually mad. And you see this light bulb go off in Kane where he realizes maybe this is the way to cure everyone. And for me, that's the moment you realize who he really is, or at least what his motivations are because he's so subdued for the first I don't know, half an hour of the film that maybe even, I think it might even actually be the first hour. And I think that's the sort of turning point, but it's so, it's like a, I don't know, it's a punch to the gut. Oh, absolutely. Well, and the illusions that keep popping up throughout the film to sheep and especially the lambs, because there's that whole story at one point, oh, Crenshaw yeah. talks about uh, P.T. Barnum and how, you know, he they put a lamb and a panther and a cage and he's like oh and the audience love it and they're like oh how did these two get along that's fantastic but you know like what they don't know is at the end of the night or in 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 between breaks you know the panther eats a lamb and it's a new lamb you know if every single day for 300 performances so whatever it was 
and and then at the very end, you know, you have Cutshaw who been, you know, I hate to say cured, but you know, he's kind of regaining his life back and the He goes through his shock therapy. Yeah. And the soldier next to him's like, Oh, I heard the doctor there, you know, was a was a mad killer or something like that. And he's just like, he was a lamb. It's so sad. Oh. And it's guys. Just, I know. Well yeah, and then we have the the priest when uh, when Kane takes Cutshaw to church and the priest is talking about how a good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And then later on, we see Reno reading Hamlet to the sheep that are in a field someplace. And it's just like, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, they that one's a little ham-handed, but most of the time, it is really nice the way that these things just kind of run through this film. And so many nice stories that are going through that. I mean, I had forgotten about the panther and the sheep story, but that is fantastic. You're 100% right. There are so right. many ridiculous and we we i feel like we keep saying this but the the sheer number of layers i mean i think if you watch the exorcist you don't get those it it doesn't connect in your brain the same way because there aren't those sheer number of layers there are definitely more in exorcist 3 but because of the way the film is cut or edited, maybe it's it's not quite as obvious. I feel like this is a kind of a stupid comparison, but even his Pink Panther film, Shot in the Dark, the way he layers the physical comedy, it's kind of a similar thing where you don't necessarily see things coming, but it's effortless. And if you go back and watch it again, you can see the lead up to all the jokes in the same way that you can see the lead up to the allusions and symbols here. And it's he just deserves so much more credit. The fact that this film isn't heralded and have like a nice criterion collection release and, and all of those trappings to me makes absolutely no sense because it's, it's a near perfect movie. There's not, I mean, and, and the fact that there are so many layers and the fact that Blatty pulls off so many things that I think would, would be a folly for even good directors. I mean, even directors that I think are really talented, if they tried to pull off everything that he does in that configuration, um, as well as some of his other work, I mean, they would, it would be, you know, it would fail. It, and, uh, cause it's just, it's a lot. And this is just, I mean, this, you know, I don't know, hopefully this, I like to think anything like podcasts and article works and books plants, plant really good scenes for for preservation and uh revisiting because uh, i don't know is the dvd even still in print there is a blu-ray of it yeah you okay it is it Amazon. just a bare bones one i think it's got the commentary uh and it probably has the outtakes oh, okay we'll okay about. not bad no no not bad at all i mean they when that i like i said i think it's blue dolphin when they put it out years ago they actually did a really good job and it was as i can't say it's as close to criterion as you're gonna get but okay good okay well that makes me i that makes me feel a little bit better then because this film you know it was out of print for you know i think before the dvd i mean you're right between the different versions of it and i think it was out of print on vhs for a number of years. I could yeah. never find it. I think the DVD was, it was hard to get a hold of for a while. And I think people were really excited about the Blu-ray, but there wasn't as much fanfare as there should have been. Personally, I think we should start, yeah, we should start a Criterion petition. If they can put out fucking Wes Anderson movies, <laughs> they can put out the Ninth Configuration. Every Wes Anderson Oh my film. God. I'm 
I want to make Valentine's for both of you right now because I have been saying the same shit for years. Well, I think Sam, you and I have probably talked about that privately too. I don't. Yes. I'll I'll save my Wes Anderson rant for another time, but yeah, <laughs> if they could put out Chasing Amy. Like, there's some films, I love Criterion as a whole, but they've put out some work where I'm like, please, this is this could not carry the jock of Ninth Configuration. <laughs> I mentioned right up front about you know The Sixth Sense and uh, Fight Club and these movies where we have the big twist. One of the things I've noticed with those two movies is when you get the twist revealed, you get that quick montage of different scenes within the film where now you know what what's going on and they re-show you those moments to kind of recast them and show you them in a different light or show you them altered to say like oh tyler durden wasn't actually there or you were dead the whole time bruce willis and look at how this person isn't reacting to you i'm so glad that they didn't do that same thing where it's like oh and hudson kane is actually my brother and he's a killer and here's what's going on and now we're going to re-show you all of these moments no that's why we're saying watch the fucking movie a second third fourth time you're going to get so much more out of it. And I'm so glad that Blatty didn't feel the necessity to like, and here's how this would have went. Had you because Blatty doesn't hate us and think we're fucking idiots. That was actually one of my, my problems with fight club. I had a few of them, but that was, yeah. I mean, cause it's just so bad. Is your problem with it that it's bad? That well, that (laughs) Helena Bonham Carter in that film seriously bugs me, and and the whole like handing it. I mean, I'm sorry, and I knew people that were like, "Oh, that film's so deep." I'm like, "Is it really deep when it it gave you?" I'm serious, yeah. And I'm like, "Is it really that deep if it gives you the cliff notes with the twist?" Because that's basically what that style that you're referring to, Mike. To me, it's like giving the cliff notes with it and it's like no i mean a, 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 a real artist to me if for my money will respect you enough to not give you everything at once like you're a little baby they're not going to cut up your little steak for you i would feed it to you like it's an airplane and they're, chew it for you first you know even with the whole scene with with cutshaw at the very end where you know okay you know even though like okay presumably the guy's you know, have have found, you know, more sanity and a new life, as at least Cutshaw has. We don't really know about the rest of them through Kane's sacrifice. You don't, it's not handed to you in a way where you're like, well, it's okay. Everything's okay now. Like, it's, it's still, you know, it, things are lighter, but you still have that, just that experience of like, you know, is everybody really going to be? Truly okay after, you know, I mean, you, you've survived the trauma and you'll, you'll live on, but you know, anybody who's been through a lot of trauma, you know, you're always going to have that scar. And an artist that acknowledges that, that's respect. I mean, the, the, the other director that I think of that was really good about doing that was Cassavetes, like Killing of a Chinese Bookie. That's another ending where, you know, is, is everything going to be all right? Yes, but no, you know, and, but that's, that's life, you know, that's being honest. Maybe actually that's why the religious themes don't bother me is because he presents them as not absolutes. Like once this character finally accepts these beliefs, everything in his world is great. It's more like here's an option and here's something that could make him see the world differently and not have it be such a horrifically isolating place, which I think that beautiful image of the astronaut and the crucifix it's so horribly lonely. And I think it's not even that Cain convinces him to have faith. It's that Cain convinces him to have hope. 
Yes. Oh, that's beautifully put. I don't, I don't know if this ties into it, but just something that hit me is like, it's so telling that Christ as a figure is often used on the cross and not, not in life. I mean, it's weird to be a Christian and be the absolute least concerned with any of the philosophy, you know, of the living Christ. It's like Christ is a ghoul figure and a lot, you know. Well, but. it's all about sacrifice, but I don't think people actually think about what that sacrifice actually means. Whereas Blatty, who was Catholic and who was raised by an extremely conservative religious mother, his films, even if they're about murder or possession, all of them in, I mean, aside from his comedies with Blake Edwards, sort of contemplate what that kind of sacrifice means. I wish that I could see this on the big screen, because I think one thing that goes unnoticed or uh, or is very difficult to see is that in that crucifixion that is stacy keach up on <gasps> the cross is it? oh shit what? yes he's up on the cross and he's actually up on the cross twice we'll talk more about the outtakes uh in the second half of the show but during his dream that he has in the car there's an outtake where you see the three people that are up on crosses and it is two angels, uh, one on either side, and him in the middle, and the two angels are talking to each other, and he remains silent the whole time, right in the center, and it's Stacy Keach up on the Damn. cross. Oh, my God. Well, hopefully, you know, somebody who does those Fathom events where they bring back classic, you know, they show like classic movies in theaters for like one or two nights only. Please listen to this and do this for us because I, I want to see this on the big screen anyways. But, yeah, I had no I had no yeah. idea. Oh, my God. And we like Sam, you and I both have seen this film multiple times. I never I never knew that was Stacey Keach and the, the astronaut. One other thing that I just want to say, because I always get off on stuff like this, it is the scream that Cyclist won. Uh, it is called, <laughs> in uh, local parlance, uh, it is called the Howie scream. And that scream that he gives before Kane throws him out the window, that scream has been sampled in a lot of other movies and TV shows now. As soon as I heard it, I was like, I know this scream. I mean, it just like stood out. It's like a Wilhelm almost like not as recognizable as a Wilhelm, but as soon as he started to scream and it, it almost sounds like a, like a, an animal crying out or like a tie fighter going by or something. And I'm just like, why do I know this noise? And it just, it kind of took me out of the movie for a second because I went back and I looked and that scream has been used in other things, including Pulp fiction. And knowing, yeah, that that scream is in Pulp Fiction, and it's in Serial Mom, and it's in Zombie Geddon, it's in Dark Angel, and and I don't even know where else it's used. But yeah, that scream. Uh, as soon as I heard, I was like, I know that, I know that from someplace. It's like these weird sound effects that we hear in things, at, like when the squids break into the what is it the the Nebuchadnezzar in the Matrix the noise that the electricity makes when they break open i hear that sound effect in everything it is used so often so when i heard that scream it just like here here's a piece of something that you've That's heard so before so crazy ninth configuration facts <laughs> i recognize that more than i recognize san antone i have to say <laughs> yeah! 
one other thing that we have to point out just because we did an episode where we talked about this guy a ton. Heather was talking about Tim Rosovich, who shows up as another one of the bikers who's just kind of like not necessarily in the background, but he's standing between Lynch and, and Sander and just like, wow, okay, I know that guy. Where do I know that guy from? And just that mustache and everything. I was like, that's the big guy from Looker. That's the guy who keeps uh, shooting Albert Finney with that gun to make him forget his memory. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. How, you know, that's the thing. Once you see Looker, there's always that little part in your brain that will remember Tim Rosovich. This is this has been scientifically yes. proven. Also, <laughs> <laughs> even though we shouldn't remember him at all because we keep getting blasted with that. Also, gun. scientifically proven when I, I don't. Well, at least for me, Mike, when you even seeing him in the ninth configuration, did you not get the Looker theme song a little bit in your head? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Oh my god, bit, that yeah. song is evil because anytime, like you know, I'm like Susan Day, and then I hear she's a Looker. You know, I'm not going to sing it, but you know what I'm talking about, and. There's been like one or two actors, two other actors in Looker that were like minor parts that have been in other things we've covered. I don't know. All roads lead to Looker, maybe? I don't know. On that note, we're going to take a break and we're going to play an interview with Mr. Killer Kane himself, Stacey Keach, right after these important messages. Hello, I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle? All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh-huh. us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Oh, that was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Hey, Projection Booth listeners. I'm Chris Stashu, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor. And we are the hosts of The Culture Cast. Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old, often centered around monthly genres. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. <laughs> Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's Culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at CultureShock.com slash CultureCast. 
This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, Proudly Resents. And you're listening to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? What do you consider your first big role in film? What was the one that kind of put you on the map? It's a combination of them. My very first film was The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And it was a wonderful character that got, got a, a, a good amount of attention. But I think that uh, the film that really sort of got me going was soon thereafter, The End of the Road. Well, there were four films sort of in a, in a row that there was The End of the Road, then The Traveling Executioner. That was the film that I think did more for me in my early career than, uh, well, and then Doc came up right shortly after that, too. So it's hard to say. It's hard to say. It really is. My mother used to always tell me, Stacy, you were never so good as you were in the heart of the lonely hunter. I don't know. I don't know. It was a wonder. I, I mean, I, 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 loved, I loved all those movies. They were great. Traveling Executioner, that one just doesn't get enough praise, I feel. Well, it's, it's a bizarre film. It's, it's a mixture. You know, it's a serious situation, capital punishment. It's about a true, it's a true story. Based on a true story about a guy who literally drove around from prison to prison in Alabama. I think it was Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, executing people with a traveling, you know, he had, a, he had, a, he had a, an electric chair in his truck. And it was written by a young graduate student at UCLA Film School. It was discovered by David Beagleman, and he put the package together, and uh, I ended up playing the lead. It was. Uh, it was a, and it was a wonderful part, very kind of Burt Lancaster-ish in his early days. Very kind of swashbuckling, but it, it 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 didn't know if it was a comedy or a, a drama. It had both elements, and they weren't well balanced. But I loved working with uh, Jack Smike, the director. He was such a nice man, and he gave me so many pointers. I because I was still very you know kind of self-conscious about working in front of a camera, having come from the theater. Uh, and I wasn't fully, you know, comfortable, uh, even then, but, you know, and I, I've seen, I, you know, it's funny when it's hard at this age to go back in that perspective, look at your movies and you say, Oh my God, that, you were so such a ham, so overacting. Good Lord. Yeah. I mean, but it was this, it was the style too. It was the style of those days, but I mean, uh, I don't know, you know, I love Star- Sergeant Stadenko is also a favorite. The Cheech and Chong movies are really wonderful. Really, you, know. you were so good in those. You just oh, so you. captivating. Yeah. <laughs> it was a fun character play, really. There's another one that you did in 74 that I absolutely love, but just I think it's still hard to find these days. The Gravy Train, a.k.a. The oh, Dion Oh, I Brothers. was thinking about it today. It's interesting you mentioned that. I was thinking about Jack Starrett, God bless him, today. Yeah, that was a fun, fun film. It was called Gravy Train originally. Then they, nobody bought any tickets to it. They thought it was a dog food commercial because it was it was a gravy train dog food in those days. And they changed the name to the Dion Brothers. Still didn't do any business anyway. It was a fun movie to work on though. It was a lot of fun. I love working with Freddie Forrest. It was so much fun playing brothers with him. You know. It was it was good and Jack Starr is crazy. I mean, he was just as crazy as well. Wonderful, wonderful energy though. Wonderful. Yeah. 
He was a good actor, too. He was a wonderful actor. Blazing Saddles, uh, Rambo. He played the bad guy in Rambo. The sheriff, he always played a bad sheriff. He had boys down here like this. We were from Texas, too. We were from very similar parts of Texas. He was from Refugio when I was down the road in Taft. And we used to always get beat by Refugio in football. Hey. <laughs> that was Jack. Yeah, he was a wonderful guy. I loved him. What was it like being Lou Ford in The Killer Inside Me? You know, I loved that character. Well, I loved the book. I loved the book. I thought the book was sensational. I was very disappointed that they they had to set it in um, Montana, I believe. Yeah, we, we set it in Montana. It was written in Texas, as I recall. My memory's a little foggy there. But I loved, I, I mean, James Cain, uh, I just loved his work. Um I mean, Jim Thompson, Jim, I mean, James King. Jim Thompson, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I loved working on that film because of the care of the actors that I had a chance to work with. John Carradine, uh, John Daner, Charles McGraw, all these old, Keenan Wynn, all these old great, and I did, it was my second movie with Susan Terrell. We had done Fat City together a couple of years before that. And I love working with her again. And Don Stroud, who I did my camera with, he was an actor that I worked with a lot. So it was, and Robert Weinbach, who produced the film and started out as a director, but he had to be relieved of his duties because he was way, way, way over budget. And Bert Kennedy came in, who I had just done a movie with called, a TV movie called All the Kind Strangers with Samantha Edgar and... Um, and he had directed that. And so I recommended him for this movie and he, he came up and he directed the film. Yeah. And I, I worked, I did a lot of the editing on the film because after the first cut, the producer wasn't happy with it. And he put me in the cutting room with these two, Aaron Stell and, and Milt, his sister, two old guys working on, on these movie owners. And we, and we 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 re, we cut the film together because I wanted to add this whole thing about his backstory in terms of being he was abused as a child or he saw his mother having sex or something of that nature. That was an ad that was not in the book. That was an ad for the movie. But it, 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 I love that film. I mean, it's it's got some wonderful things in it, but it's not commercial box office material, you know. But uh, and they did a remake of it recently it was very unsuccessful but so was the original so <laughs> like uh, i had read that you were originally up for the role of uh, uh father Karras in the exorcist is that true that is true that is absolutely true for a weekend it was a friday a friday i went to the sherry netherlands hotel with william peter blatty and william friedkin and uh uh, Linda Blair and Ellen read a couple of scenes. Went back to my apartment, checked in a couple of hours later. My agent called me and said, you got the part. You got the part. I said, fantastic. I was, I couldn't believe it. I was so happy. She said, but they offered you no money at all. No money. I think I can improve the deal. I said, well, you know, I you know, do what you think is right. I mean, I was pretty, still pretty young. I, you know, I... I've only been doing this for a few years. So I said, yeah, go ahead. Well, unbeknownst to me, 
William Friedkin and William Peter Blatty went to see that championship season on Saturday and met with Jason Miller afterwards. They had drinks together. And Monday morning, I got a call from my agent saying they passed. I said, what do you mean they passed? He said, well, we came back to them for two times the amount that they had offered, and they passed. And they went with Jason Miller. Who later I worked within, and this is a perfect segue, the ninth configuration. And as a result of that relationship, then down the road, we did that championship season together. Were you originally up for Kane when it came to ninth configuration? No, I was up for Cutshaw. I had I was very heavily considered for Cutshaw. But they did, they went with Scott, and, and they cast Nicole Williamson as Kane. He was the original Kane. And he's in Budapest in a hotel room trying to make a phone call to his wife in London. This is how legend goes, how legend has it. And he couldn't communicate with the operator downstairs. He got so furious, he ripped the phone out of the wall and threw it through the plate glass window. He was on a plane the next day out of the country. Laddie called me and said, are you available? I said, yes, I'm available. Oh, yeah. And that's how that happened. Arriving in Budapest amongst the, you know, these actors, they'd all been working with Nicole Williamson for a week. They were rehearsing, you know, and here comes the ringer. Here comes here I come. I'd worked with Scott. That was a good, we'd done the New Centurions together. And I and I knew Scott, so that was a that was a great plus. I was very relieved of that. And I went to school with George DiCenzo. We went to Yale together, the Yale Drama School together. So I knew a couple of guys, but I was a little intimidated, and they were a little pissed, and I didn't blame them. They'd work shit out with Nicole, and you know I know how that goes. But they they put me into we all made adjustments. Everything was fine. Yeah, I just was a, it was a great trip. I'm most amazed at the caliber of actors that are in that one film. Just every single person is doing such a tremendous job. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's it's totally character driven, and each character has his own unique individual personality. But I is was was it was a he's a genius at that. He really is, and he came to us. And he said, "You know, The Exorcist." Both of these films, The Ninth Configuration Killer, also known as Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, it's the other title that the book was written by. You know, both, you know, both acknowledge the importance and the existence of a higher power, or in the case of The Exorcist, a lower power. The Ninth Configuration is a film about faith, about the existence of a higher power. And so he's, you know, he's very spiritual man, Vladdy, very spiritual. And uh, he also did a brilliant thing during the shooting. He had had Barry Dvorak write the music for the movie before they even started shooting it. He would play the music before we would, get, we would perform the scene to get us in the mood of what it was going to be like. That was brilliant. That's never happened before or since. You would, play, you would actually, the theme music of the movie would be part of your inspiration for your acting. I love watching your character and watching the people around you after seeing it the first time and knowing kind of your backstory more, watching their reactions to you. But the but seeing it the second time and just watching you, you play it so flat, your affect, but your eyes are just alive. I, and Vladdy kept telling me all the way through the movie, no, 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 it's too much inflection, too much 
spin, take it off. I just want a flat reading. Everything should be monotone almost. Everything should be in one phrase. There's no melody here. There's just a, he's caught in a tone. He's caught in time and he's caught in a kind of catatonic state. It was not unlike Jacob. I played a catatonic at the end of the road. So I was, you know, and I kept saying, I don't want to repeat that. But Vladi, he was very, very emphatic about keeping the tone neutral until the big explosion. Until the, you know, and it worked because it, 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 I think it indicated a tension and a pent upness, a repressed personality that all comes out in violence in the bar scene, certainly. I mean, uh, that repression goes away. That's a wonderful, wonderfully uh, choreographed scene. Bobby Bass did a great job choreographing that fight scene in the bar. Yeah, the the violence in that is just so shocking, especially after you've been so calm for so long in the film. Yeah, yeah, and that's. I think that was you know that was his intent, Vladdy's intent. Yeah, and it certainly worked. But again, it didn't make any money. <laughs> did you shoot that one in sequence? No, not not entirely. No. It depended, yeah, uh, but mostly in sequence, mostly. But the first, I mean, interestingly enough, the exterior of the castle was shot in Germany. The courtyard of the castle was shot in Vienna, and the interiors were all shot in a studio in Budapest. Malcolm, the film was financed with frozen funds from Pepsi-Cola, yeah, one of the sponsors. Yeah. This was Blatty's first time behind the camera, as far as I know. What was he like to work with as a director? Well, he was wonderful. He was wonderful because he really understood. He understands film, yeah, and and uh, and, and he under and he, 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 you know, Blatty started off in high school as an actor. He was an actor as a kid. Because we used to compare notes. Uh, I played Cyrano shortly around the time of the nineteen configuration, and we were talking about. We were comparing notes about Cyrano because he had played in high school or college and was had been had great success with it. But it's one of those actor-proof roles; you can't go wrong. Anyway, he's an actor, so he 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 really was. He allowed the actors to create these unique characters you had mentioned earlier. Everybody was so individual and very specific to their backdrop. He had a history, a biography for each character in his head and conveyed that to the actors who had combined it with theirs. I mean, Neville Brand and Robert Loja and Moses Gunn and Ed Flanders. Uh, my God, what a group. Fantastic. Fantastic group. It was unbelievable. And there are not many of us left. There's me and Scott and uh, Bill Lucking, who plays one of the cops at the end. Yeah, I recently spoke to Tom Atkins. Well, Tommy's still there with us. Tommy's still with us. He was saying that it was uh, kind of crazy, the shoot, just um, mm. keeping everybody in the location and everything for so long and having everybody play off of each other made yeah. for kind of an anarchic atmosphere. But I imagine something that was good for the role. Oh, it was. It was great for the role. And Jason Miller and uh, um, Joe Spinell. My God, what oh, I love were, Joe Spinell. I did too. I just love, well, I love both of them. They were both, but they were they they lived hard. They, I mean, you talk about drink and snort and whatever. I mean, they, 
my God, uh, I'd have been dead long before they were. They had a great tolerance. I mean, they, every night we uh, they said, come on, we're going out, where are you going? Where are we going to go to this bar? And, you know, and, uh, just, you know, and a, a good friend, Tim Rosevich, who became a good, dear good friend of, of ours, uh, was in that film, played one of the bad guys in the bar. He was an ex, ex-Philadelphia Eagle, the ex-pro football player. Had an amazing personality, but he would go back to the kitchen and they would get service and take a glass and he would, you know, eat the glass, bite it like that. Jesus, uh, unbelievable. Wild. It was wild over there in Budapest. And I, stay, I tried to stay away from most of it because I was, you know, I was caught up in this role. It was a heavy responsibility. I didn't spend a lot of time cajoling with the boys, but they did. And we played bocce. We learned how to play bocce. In between takes, we had these great bocce tournaments with Vincenzo and Loja and Jason Miller yeah, and Spinell. Yeah, we learned how to play bocce. It became a total fixation. One thing that I was very surprised to see in your uh, autobiography and all in all was that picture of you with the crown of thorns from one of the uh, omitted sequences. Can you tell me a little bit more what that scene was supposed to be like? That was uh, that was Blatty's brilliant statement. I mean, you know, that Christ, there was even Christ was on the moon too. Uh, I mean, that Christ is, you know, was a universal, but he wanted to make it literal, you know, to give it that poetic touch. And, uh, boy, I mean, playing Jesus in that moment was not, uh, it was no, 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 there was no fun doing that. It was a painful experience, but that's what it was supposed to be. And also, and it's exonerating, I think the, the image is also the fact that it's Cain playing Christ, an exoneration in his mind of the, you know, the horrors that he created by killing, by being killer Cain, by being, you know, a guy who killed over 50 people in Vietnam. Killer. Born killer. Trained killer. But not incapable of guilt and remorse, which just eats him alive. And that's when he goes into that state and becomes the patient. And you also wrote a little bit about the ending of the film and your sacrifice. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was an, also a fascinating part of the whole experience because Blatty could never, he never, he could never reconcile or decide whether it was a suicide or if he died trying to defend Petra. If it was self-inflicted or if it was inflicted by the enemy. He changed the ending three times. Three times. Went back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. And you know, I still, to this day, I can't remember which ending is there. <laughs> now, I don't remember which ending it is. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Because it doesn't really matter, I don't think. The version I saw yesterday, you had a knife in your hand. So he did himself in, in that version. Yeah, the knife is not in the uh, other version. He cut the knife. He put it back. Well, I'm glad he put it back because it was shot, and uh, I'm glad he's using it. I think it's more provocative in a way, too. Because even in Catholic terms, I don't know the difference between Jesuits and Dominicans, but Christ's crucifixion was preordained. It was something that was, yeah, something he prophesied himself, and... uh, in effect, 
the crucifixion is judged as a suicide in a way, in some cases, as opposed to a, I mean, it was something he orchestrated it or you know, that, 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 anyway, that's part of their doctrine. Interesting, interesting theological differences. But Gladi is very much into theology. He's very, he's very Catholic in that respect and intelligent in that respect, historically accurate. And the exorcist is, was, you know, uh, by the way, fascinating fact about Gladi. He wrote the film script for the exorcist before he wrote the book. He did the same thing. He did the same thing with Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Jane. He wrote the film script, and then he wrote the book. Interesting, isn't it? Fascinating way of working. Well, the narrative is in his head, and he, then he puts it down on paper. And, you know, it's just, just fascinating to me that, that, that he did it that way. But again, he did, he had, as I say, and the other thing, providing the music, composing the music for the film based on the script, Barry DeBarge and I worked out the script because there was no film shot and composed the score for the movie and the themes, the musical themes for the movie. And those, that's what we used uh, before we shot those scenes. It was amazing. I, that's why I love doing narrations and whenever I have to do voiceover or looping or, you know, redoing, uh, um, redoing something because of the, there's a sound effect or, it's not it's not clear or they're changing a word the quality of the of the uh of the sound is always better when i'm redoing it with when i can hear the music i think that's true most actors i think most actors respond to music uh, in terms of their characters i wanted to know a little bit about road games that movie has it seemed like it kind of flew under the radar for a while, but a lot of people have been talking about it lately, it seems. And it is such a terrific thriller. Yeah, well, Richard Franklin, God love him, was a, was a, an avid devotee of Alfred Hitchcock. He knew every frame of every movie that Hitchcock ever shot. And I mean, he was he was a Hitchcockian uh, genius. He just, in terms of his ability to mimic, I won't say mimic, to emulate Hitchcock in terms of his movies. And I think Road Games is a good example of, of that. It is a good thriller. It's, uh, it, it has a lot of interesting aspects to it. Grant Page plays the bad guy, was also the stunt coordinator, and he had coordinated, he was trying to figure out how the truck was going to get up and, get, and jump up and go you know, on top of the other truck the physics of how he was going to do it. And I mean, he worked, <laughs> he spent days with slide rules and this and that and everything. We got it there to do it and it didn't work. <laughs> he had, we had to, we had to hoist the truck up, put it on top of the other truck. But I loved, I also loved working with Killer, my dog. He was a, an Australian red, which, you know, he, there's no way you cannot tame a, 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 a jackal. Um, uh, what was the breed? I forget the name of the breed of that dog. But they, he was a mix, uh, and a mix they could be. It was trainable. Dingo, uh, dingo. Was that your first time working in Australia? Yes, first time. I've worked there since, but I, that was the first time. Yeah, I loved it. Oh yeah, 
Yeah, it's a wonderful. Yeah, it's a wonderful film for both of us. And uh, the chapter on games got cut out of my book by the publishers, and I was very upset about that. And they just said it was too long and rambling. And but it was, we had a great time. There's some great stories. We, you know, we went across the Nullarbor Plain, shooting our way across, and living in in gas station motels and taking saltwater showers. It was oh man, it was rough. Because you're out there in the bush and there's nothing. They call Nullarbor means no trees. And it was desolate. And we got to this place called Eufla. We had these magnificent sand dunes, very photogenic sand dunes. And Jamie and me and I decided we'd go out and play in the sand dunes. You know, we were, out, we were jumping around in the sand dunes. We came back and we were in makeup and said, what did you do today? Well, we were around playing in the sand dunes. And they, the makeup lady and hair, they looked in horror at us. And they said, didn't anybody tell you that the funnel web spider lives in those dunes? Oh, no. And that's why there was nobody there. I mean, nobody. Yeah. They have been, I mean, they, they have creatures down there that kill you. That's the only thing. But they, but they also, we have the man's also very, I mean, they took me out one night to go kangaroo hunting at night in jeeps with flashlights. And I just, I just said, no, 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 I don't do this. Oh, no. No. But I learned, you know, a lot about life there. I mean, it was the difference between the red roos and the gray roos and the wallabies and the bird life there is unbelievable. So beautiful. These lorikeets, the colors are just they're indescribable. Yeah. No, it was a wonderful experience. I loved doing it. It was great. And we went to Perth. It, this old Victorian city on the uh, west coast. It, 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 uh, it was a trip. It was, it was uh, yeah. And then I, I went back to Australia to do a television movie with Cynthia Rothrock called Irresistible Force about a couple of cops busting terrorists trying to blow up a mall. And I don't think it never got shown here. I think because it was a little too close to home. It was only shown in the Philippines. It's a big hit in the Philippines. <laughs> and what are you working on these days? We just got a wonderful award from the Hollywood Film Awards for Best Ensemble for Gold with Matthew McConaughey, Edwin Ramirez, uh, Bryce, and I want to say Bryce. Bryce Dallas Howard? Yeah, for Best Ensemble, which is very nice because I went and saw The Accountant the other night. I thought that was a pretty damn good movie. Now they have a wonderful ensemble there, too. Wonderful. Bunch of friends. I did a couple of episodes with Patrick Stewart on his show and Mary Steenberg Virgin uh, on Blunt Talk and that's coming out next uh, couple of weeks. Um, yeah, a couple of weeks. And we're still waiting. I did a movie with Bob Odenkirk, uh, Girlfriend's Day. Very interesting thing that he wrote and produced and uh, stars in. About The backdrop is um, the greeting cards industry. industry. It's fascinating, you know. Very, it's really, uh, that that should be coming out. And I play, I play the bad guy, and I'm his bad boss. I just finished doing um, Neil Delacroce and uh, Gotti, uh, John with John Travolta. I'm very, uh, we're excited about that. He, he was, he was terrific as John Gotti. That's gonna be that's next year though. That that won't be out for a year, you know. But uh, yeah, no, goals on the plate. Goal is coming up. That's my next, that's coming up. 
is it more fun for you to play the hero or the villain? Oh, the villains are always more fun. Oh, yeah. Always. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, bad guys, because they, because you don't have to follow a behavioral moral code. You can depart from that in any fashion you want to. You can be crazy. You can be, you can be schizophrenic. You can be, you can create different aspects of your character. Um, if you're playing the bad guy, very rare is a good guy given those opportunities to be that many different people, to be that many different kinds of people. You sort of have to be straight down the middle. I mean, think of all of our hero heroes. I mean, Jimmy Stewart, Gary Cooper, John Wayne, they always had, they had an essence that was made them heroic. That's why I love working with Gregory Peck because he was, he departed from his, you know, and, and Olivier too. I mean, those guys were heroes. They could play the hero or the bad guy. It just depended on the circumstances. And I guess the salary. What was it like being in uh, Mountain of the Cannibal God? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I, well, exotic. It was exotic. Being in Sri Lanka, it was, uh, you know, it, it was just an amazing environment. Dangerous, but, uh, and I love working with Ursula, and I were, and the other actors were fun. It was, but it, and it was an adventure. It really was. It was like an adventure. The script was not very good, to be honest, basis, and the photography, and you know, but it was a great. You know, Ursula was a great girl. I mean, she's amazing. I loved it. I really had a good time. Yeah, and I, I, think I told the story in my book about this. We were shooting a scene on the riverbank where a cobra comes looming up out of the bushes and Claudia, the, the Italian hero, grabs it. You know, they practice it over and over and over again. The next day we're shooting in the water and shooting a scene where we have to swim from one island to the shore. And as we got there, there was a white water cobra crawling up Ursula's body on her uniform. And without even an instinct, Cloudy was standing, was right next to her. He grabbed the cobra the way he was taught to grab the cobra the day before and saved her life. Because she'd been bitten by that thing, by, by Ursula. White water cobra. Unbelievable. Scared the shit. Scared the bejesus out of me, I tell you. Yeah. But it was great being in that part of the world and experiencing the culture, particularly. Yeah, uh, the elephants in candy and the celebrations and the way people live there. And in Colombo, the capital where we spend most of our time, is a, was an amazing place. And it was before the tensions between the Muslims and the Hindus and the, um, had gotten serious, you know. You know, it was before that. And Buddhists, there were Buddhists there too. So it was a great, it was a mix. And they were getting along when we were there, but this was, gosh, it was in the 70s, I believe. Well, Mr. Keach, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been a a true pleasure. Well, it's been a pleasure, man. Good luck with your article. I look forward to reading it down the road. Bye-bye. All right, you have a good night. Cheers. Bye-bye.
we're back and we were talking about the ninth configuration and uh, Sam and uh, Heather are still babies. <laughs> I do have to say that if you want to hear more about the ninth configuration, I did talk to Tom Atkins about it on the uh, night of the creeps episode. He's not a big fan, was not a big fan of the way that the movie was made. And I can kind of, I can, I imagine I can kind of see why just because there's a lot of there was probably a lot of lunacy happening on set even like watching some of the outtakes from this film you can see different different versions of different scenes play out and i imagine there was a lot of um just kind of messing around trying to get this because i'm trying to remember was this blatty's first film that he directed and he had been playing around with this story i mean this is one of those just insane thing. So he wrote Twinkle Twinkle Little Killer Kane in 1966. And then he writes a version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1968. So that's one movie that I have on purpose, purpose not mentioned as we're talking about this film. Because as you watch Ninth Configuration, you might get some overtones of cuckoo's nest in there so he wrote the script for the version now we know michael douglas produced one flew of the cuckoo's nest and at one point kirk douglas was set to star as mcmurphy in cuckoo's nest and this is a quote from blatty talking about it he said uh, one flew of the cuckoo's nest was written in 1968 for kirk douglas who was to play mcmurphy i met with ken kesey and crafted the script to be as faithful to the novel as i possibly could make it which was not the case with the film made years later with jack nicholson that this script with Kirk in the lead wasn't made as perhaps the biggest heartbreak of my literary career, which is saying something for somebody who had so many things kind of fucked around with over the years. Now, that script apparently is available in this uh, collection, William Peter Blatty's Lost Screenplay Collection, but it's one of those insane books where it's like $300 to buy it, so fuck that i couldn't afford that shit so unfortunately i wasn't able to read that and kind of compare it blatty came back to the book again and rewrote it as the ninth configuration that was 1978 but in 1975 he had written a script for the ninth configuration which i managed to get my hands on so he's constantly working on this thing and then like i said at the very beginning i said this movie was 1979 which is what the copyright says at the end of the film but on imdb it says 1980 so there's even like controversy as far as that stuff is going you know it's i mean imdb is nine out of ten times wrong but you know it's commonly said that this is a 1980 film even though the credits say 1979 and then reading through um i tried to find like a video watchdog comparison type article they used to be good for doing those like and in this version this line is missing and in this version this line is there and they would probably have had a field day with this movie because i've read that there are five different versions of the film going from and now again this is from imdb so i do not uh say that this is true at all going from 99 minutes up to 140 minutes and the one that we watched was what 118 so just shy of two hours even with all of the outtakes that are on that disc it's not 140 minutes i mean there's there's a few extra things that are on the disc a couple things that i wish maybe were in there the only line really 
while there's two things that I wish was in the movie that we saw, and that is they're pretty much they all take place in one scene. It is when Cutshaw and Kane are going at it when he comes in and gives Kane a mud pie because that's where he explains one what he's talking about when they talk about caterpillar blood because caterpillar blood comes up a lot and at one point Kane even uh, accuses Groper of being a caterpillar killer and that comes from Cutshaw talking about how there was a kid in his neighborhood when he grew up that tortured caterpillars and that that kid was a bastard and he grew up to be a bastard and that you know he even uses that line later on when he's at the biker bar and he says, you know, bring me two spittoons filled with caterpillar blood. So it's like this running thing, but you never get the explanation. And then the other thing that we have running through the film is when Cutshaw calls God a foot. And that comes from him talking about how ugly feet are. He says, if God, you know, there can't be a God because we have feet and feet are the ugliest things possible. <laughs> and then he goes on to say that if there is a god, he's a foot. It's like, okay, that would have been nice to have. I once knew a kid used to torture caterpillars, cut them up and burn them. You know why he did it, Hud? I'll tell you. He did it because he was a bastard, and he grew up to be a bastard. Every insensitive grown-up bastard started as a bastard, just like Groper, the hateful creep. You hate him? Hell no. He's a regular Santa Claus. Every Christmas he jumps in his sled and delivers napalm to the poor. Major Groper's had a very hard life. That's Jack the Ripper crap. He's a very brave man. He's a goddamn green-soaked bastard who's up to his knees in the blood of caterpillars. Why do you wear that armband? Because I'm in mourning. For whom? That's right. I don't belong to the God is alive and hiding in Argentina club. But I believe in the devil, all right. You know why? Because the prick keeps doing commercials. If you believe... Buster! Enough about God, do you hear me? I don't want to talk about God. Now change the subject. Fine. You pick one. Feet. What about... I can't stand the sight of them. How can a so-called beautiful God give us ugly padding things like feet? So you can walk? I don't want to walk. I want to fly. Men's feet are disfiguring and disgraceful. If God exists, then he's a think. Or more likely, a foot. A giant, all-powerful, all-knowing foot. Otherwise, like I mentioned the thing about the two angels that are talking to each other on the crosses... That scene really is superfluous because they basically are giving you backstory and they're almost giving you what Ed Flanders has given us in the voiceover. So I think it's one or the other. You either get Ed Flanders doing the voiceover or you get these two angels who are crucified giving that same information. I think the Flanders VO is very effective. I don't think that it would have worked as well with these two guys doing that. Otherwise, that's about it. Even when it comes to you know some of these other things. The only other thing that Again, I mentioned earlier, as far as does Blatty even remember which version he's watching with Mark Kermode, was the they shot the ending two ways as far as when the hand falls uh, by the chair, 
does the knife drop out or does it not drop out? And then that affects the letter that Cutshaw gets. And who knows when Kane had time to write this letter. When he gets this letter in, in one, he says that the bikers had stabbed him. And the other, he says that he stabbed Which himself. makes me so... I don't want to say it makes me so angry because I, I get what he's trying to go for there, but it makes it a totally different thing if he's killed accidentally or circumstantially versus if he kills himself. I think it's so much more powerful if he kills himself because it, it brings in to the discussion, this whole debate of Christian sacrifice versus suicide is a mortal sin and where do you fall on that spectrum where does where does Cain fall on that spectrum what does his suicide mean is it a selfish act a transformative act like and you don't have any of that if he just dies because he intervened in this fight is that his sacrifice though that he decided that he would stand up for Cutshaw is that his sacrifice then as opposed to did he just kill himself? I mean, I can get, I kind of am coming from the other world where I think it would be better if when his hand drops, there is no knife and that he just, he got stabbed. He took the knife instead of Cutshaw taking the Disagree. knife. Disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because there's that line earlier and this, this line is not in the script where they talk about altruism and they talk about the man who jumps on their grenade um, and saves the rest of his squadron. And Cutshaw just says, nope, that's a ref- no, that's, reflex action. Isn't that in the, that's and, in the movie. Yeah, that was in the, that... well, it's in the movie. Oh, it's not oh, in the oh. script. It's not in the script. So that's something that got added someplace after 1975. So maybe that's in the 78 book. I don't know, but it, it's funny. There are only just a few things that aren't, in the script from 75 that end up being in the movie. Robert Loggia and blackface is one of those. And then a couple lines here and there, but altruism, I think is one of the most interesting questions when it comes to that, because there is that question of the man who throws himself on the grenade or, you know, steps on the, the landmine or whatever, do who does that selfless act for the rest of these other people and I think that that line plays into the whole knife thing very well. And I, I'm glad that you disagree with me, Sam, by the way, because I'm glad that you're coming at it from a different angle than I am, because it'd be a, a really boring conversation if we were all saying the same thing. When it comes to that whole idea of throwing yourself on the grenade, I always thought that that was the most altruistic thing. And then some people say that altruism doesn't exist, that even if you throw yourself on the grenade, at some point in your head, you think, I'm going to be called a hero for this. Now, is that the most cynical thing in the world? Or do you think that that's actually there? No, I think, well, so I think this is Cutshaw's whole argument is that there are no, and I think that this is sort of the crux of the film and it doesn't have anything to do, or it doesn't have as much to do with God or an afterlife or spirituality. I think the central question is, are humans evil or are humans capable of love? And obviously Cain proves to Cutshaw that humans are capable of love. But in terms of altruism specifically, it's there's always a potential selfish motive. So I think that makes it complicated. Like whether you believe one way or the other, you can't deny that 
somebody perhaps does good deeds because they're fixated on the reward. So it doesn't necessarily take away from their good deed, but it doesn't necessarily make it a pure spiritual act either. Jumping on a grenade goes against the biological imperative to fuck and to make little babies. And that's the whole thing. The propagation of the species is like at the end of the day, that's so much of what drives so many people. And it's interesting that I'm saying that uh, to two childless women and I'm a childless man. I think you also have to take into account that Blatty had a military background and obviously the characters in the film are in the Marines And I think the question of the average person on the street jumping on a grenade is not the same thing as the question of somebody who has been put through extensive training. They have a different response to violence, and they've also been put through this harrowing, long-time situation where they're in a different kind of reality. And I, I think that's one of the things the film is so great at addressing is it brings to mind this whole issue of PTSD where these people who have been taken from what we think of as normal reality are plunged into this world of sort of nonstop violence. And then they're expected to enter back into normal reality, but they can't tell which one is which or who they are anymore. And I think the grenade sort of is a symbol for the jumping on the grenade is a symbol for that because day-to-day altruistic acts like giving the homeless guy on the street $5 or things along those lines, they're not, you can't really parallel them to somebody who's undergone all this training instinctively jumping on the grenade because that's what they've been trained to do is to cover it at any cost and prevent shrapnel from flying around. You could argue, and I think psychologists certainly have, that that kind of military training is meant to override those kinds of day-to-day human instincts. And I think that's the thing is that, you know, it's, again, ties into just how everything else, you know, in, in both in life and certainly in the film is complicated. And there's not an easy answer. I mean, one thing, you know, I was thinking about earlier today is that, you know, with Kane, you know, we're so used to, especially in mainstream Senate where you have, uh, a character who, you know, everything is so much more black and white. And the, the beauty of this film is Kane, despite being quote unquote killer Kane and, you know, I mean, and, and having, you know, decapitating a young boy, you know, and having this heinous thing, he is like one of the pure, you know, not purest, I mean, but one of the most like good centered people in this universe. Like he's a good man. And, you know, I, I think, to, you know, people in society, not even just in with film, they people want things that are easy and pat. They want to think of somebody's a good person and they've never done anything in their saint, which is unrealistic as all hell, because, you know, by our own nature, human nature, we are just as much driven at times to do something good as sometimes maybe do something that's not so good. Um, to what extreme degree? I mean, yeah, most of us, you know, aren't going to go on a killing spree, but then again, a lot of us aren't in war either. And that's the thing, like, you know, when good people are put in extreme situations, you cannot hold it. You know, Can you hold it against them if they do something extreme? It brings up so many good questions. I like that 
we reused the song from Rolling Thunder because I think Rolling Thunder also kind of looks at that same thing from a really different angle coming at it from pushing these vets to the extreme and it it almost plays into that crazy Vietnam vet trope that was out there for a while of the guy that comes back and that I think going way back to the beginning of this conversation is what some people could mistake the ninth configuration for being is oh it's a bunch of crazy veterans from Vietnam also that this came out in 7980 we are what six years removed from the official end of the Vietnam War. We've already had so many of these movies. We've had Coming Home. We've had Rolling Thunder. We've had uh, Apocalypse Now. So it's like, okay, maybe we're done with Vietnam um, and Vietnam veterans. And but these are still really great questions that are there. I mean, maybe this film is better suited for 2017 than it was for 1980. But yeah, it's it's good that they, to me, I like that Dvorzan reused that song from one to the other because they're, they're damaged people, not necessarily in the same way, but they are affected by the same thing. It does have a lot of resonance today, not necessarily because we have a ton of veterans suddenly flooding the country. I mean... We do, but because people have been forced to think more and more about how veterans are treated, but also how the country addresses mental illness and how that affects violence, particularly gun violence. And like, what do you do with these people? How, how do you treat them? And I don't think there's necessarily a question of, are they faking? But how do you recognize them? Where do they fit in? Again, it's like there's a humanity given to all of the characters. And, you know, with Kane, he just immediately is like, my door is always open with them. And he's sincere. You can tell that there's not any pretense. Of course, I mean, I guess knowing the twist, that helps. But even before you know that, you know, before you, you don't you don't know the twist when you're first going into the film. And it's just so striking to have this, like, you know, this psychiatrist not, you know, who's completely open to these characters as an equal. Right. It's so important for him to have his door open at all times. And he just keeps stressing that to the point where um, Ed Flanders is just like, you need to get some sleep. And he's like, no, no, no. The, the men must have access at all times. It starts to degrade his health. I mean, there's that great line. <laughs> I forget what the exact line is, but there's this great line where Fell asks him if he's feeling if he's been feeling unstable and when you watch the film a second time, you know what that means and you know why Fell is asking it. But the first time around, it just seems sort of strange and off-putting. Like, why is this other doctor treating the psychiatrist this way? There's even that strange line where he says, do you want to go out to breakfast and get some eggs Benedict? And the way that Kane's face lights up. He's like, oh, I love eggs, Benedict. That's my favorite dish. And then he just shuts right down again. That helps explain again, going back to that scene of Ed Flanders crying outside the door. Yeah, why is this guy crying? But then when you know that he's It's so sad. Actually, one thing uh, I do have in my notes, and it's another kind of thing where I definitely would love either one of your input on is, and it's a small thing, but... um, you know, early on when they're, uh, when I think it, you know, 
Ed Flanders is talking to Kane, talking to Stacey Keach about Fairbanks. Um, who's like a minor character in that he got like an injury flying a German plane. And, and my mind immediately went to the Lockheed F-104 Starfighter, which uh, there was a huge scandal in the 70s because um, like a bunch of these planes, uh, particularly in Germany, were sold and people kept dying in them. They were not safe planes. And in fact, um, of course, this is how I know it, is Robert Calvert, who was in Hawkwind. <laughs> Oh, I love, of course. I know. I know. I I love Hawkwind. That's a little known fact. <laughs> a wide, or a widely known fact, depending on your perspective. It's an extremely <laughs> wide, widely known fact, and I especially love Robert Calvert. Um, his his first solo album was called Captain Lockheed and the Starfighters, and the whole album is is you know basically about how the German service had these these planes with a really incredibly bad safety record and. Uh, you know, and it's a great album, but I immediately was like, because there's so many cool kind of references. There's so many references throughout this whole film where it wouldn't surprise me if that little bit of dialogue was about the Lockheed. But maybe not. I may be, I may be reading too much into it because, of course, my brain is like Hawkwind. So. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, there's the one thing that I wrote down I didn't bring up, which was when he's at church and he says, is that Edgar Casey?" And I had to go look up who Edgar Casey was, and I was just like, "Oh wow!" And that like unlocked a whole thing, you know, talking about that six degrees of the ninth configuration. That was one where I'm just like, I fell into this Wikipedia hole looking up this guy and seeing all of this stuff about this person. And yeah, this movie is just thick with references. Oh God, I love the Edgar Casey line. <laughs> by the way, he that in, in the middle of mass. <laughs> I was just like, oh my god, this, this movie just gives you all the gifts, and some of them are going to break your heart, and some of them will delight you, but this whole film is a just enormous gift. Well, we were talking last week about um, On the Ego Fest, which if people didn't spend the five hours listening to that, um, I don't blame you, but I was talking about the idea of why I read scripts, and I have to say that... Uh, and Sam will probably <laughs> scoff at me be, having read the book of this because the script really helped cement so many things in this movie for me where just reading it made more of an impact than seeing it sometimes because I would catch those lines a little bit more, see how they change things, and just the, doing that constant comparison of the two things where the scene was originally where it moved to where this cutscene fit in all of this stuff it really helped me appreciate the movie a little bit more than just watching the film so many times and what reminded me was because that Ed, edgar casey line is in there and there's another thing where he uh well there's uh, it's very funny there's a um uh, a story in here as I'm just flipping through the pages, I see a story where he's talking about uh, a father Damien who, uh, uh, spent his life working among the lepers of Molokai. And I'm just like, Oh, father Damien, that's interesting that you would use that name. But, uh, yeah, there's so many other things in here where it's just like, it, it helps put the pieces together a little bit more. So I really do have to stress if you can get your hands on the script or if you can get your hands on the book, either, Twinkle Twinkle Little Cane or the Ninth Configuration book, it 
gives this movie even more weight than it already did. You can appreciate the movie without having read the book, but there's just so many more, so much more nuances that you get. Well, from that. the book, it's also, I think this is a particularly unique occurrence where you have the author of the book, not only writing the script, but directing the film. And that has happened so few times in cinema history, but in this case, he does such a faithful. And so I actually haven't read that 1966 version of the book. I read the one from the seventies and it's so faithful that I found myself and I, my brain tends to focus on patterns and like I notice repetitions and things, which can be really distracting. It's good for writing film criticism, but not good for sitting back and just watching a movie to enjoy it. But he does such a faithful adaptation of the novel that kind of like you were saying, it's helpful to read because you catch things, you catch lines of dialogue that are delivered so fast that you start to notice, oh, okay, Riptorn does show up a bunch of times. How about that? <laughs> There's a lot of references to knives in the movie, in the script, uh, that I didn't really catch before. One of those, that that same scene I was talking about with Cutshaw, Cut Shaw. And now, a few words about my childhood. I had three maiden aunts whose names were Ugly, Vulgar, and Tawdry. And every Christmas they'd buy me a Monopoly game from a thrift shop, and the board was always missing. I never had a fucking board. Sure, I finally made one. But how does it sound? Go directly to Jackknife and do not pass Frog? Oh, well, screw it. So I never had a board. But I'd never use that as a cop-out, Hunt. That Jack the Ripper crap. Jack the... Jack the Ripper was misunderstood. At the age of six, he had a lucky knife called Rosebud. And somebody stole it. So Jack spent the rest of his lifetime looking for it. But he had it in his head that his knife had been hidden in somebody's throat. Now, do you buy that crap? No, I don't. You're funny that way. I'm sure there are more knife references, but then that that uh, Kane takes his life with a knife. I was just like, oh, that's really good. There's too much to talk about here, I think. We, um, we, I think we could do many more hours. <laughs> it would be the ego fest of... <laughs> which, Mike, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, think, I think people should check it out. I mean, it's five hours of, um, of complete uh, insanity in William Forsyth. So <laughs> there and you how go. How can you beat that? I haven't listened to it yet because I'm pretty much consistently six weeks behind on every podcast. So... Next month, I'll get to it. <laughs> uh, you, you more than anybody have all the reasons because you were kicking a lot of ass and getting so much done, which is awesome. Everybody else, though, they have no excuse. And they must. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm going to be completely unfair about this. <laughs> no excuse. <laughs> all right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
That's right, we'll be back next week with the discussion of The Lost One by Peter Lorre, where I'll be joined again by Sam Deegan. Until then, Sam, what is the haps with so, you? So, obviously, since you just mentioned that I was, since Heather just mentioned that I was busy, all the things, but especially working on a John Rollin book that I'm editing. Heather is a contributor, and it's written by all female film critics, historians, writers. It's called Lost Girls. And right now, I think when this episode goes live, it will still be running. But right now, there's an Indiegogo for the book so that we can reach our target goal and print the whole thing in color. So I'm very excited about that. Ooh, I have Thank you. Money. See, Mike gave us money, so the rest of you should, too. And even while we're recording this episode, I will be putting up a uh, reminder on the Facebook group to say, you should give money, too. It is much, much, much appreciated. Uh, Well, when you and I haven't been plotting uh, to join William Forsythe's street gang (laughs) or casting Vinnie Vincent in a sequel to Kiss Meets the Phantom, uh, I have, uh, well, as Sam mentioned, I've been blessed enough to be a part of this great Jean Moulin book, which is very exciting. Uh, Also, three of my past articles are going to be featured in an upcoming book entitled Cult Epics, Comprehensive Guide to Cult Cinema, which um, I'm sure some of you are familiar with the company Cult Epics, which um, I have reached their 25th anniversary and so nico b who runs it it has basically put together this book that's um past article work on some of the films but also um new interviews and in fact um i know he for a fact he interviewed anna biller who you've interviewed mike for the love witch episode and many others there's some great pieces on filmmakers like tinto brass and just um it'll be great stuff and you can find more information about that uh on their website cultepics.com yeah, and I noticed the cover of the uh, what was it? The encyclopedia. Oh yes. Uh, I, in addition to that, um, I'm also working on the Bizarre Film Encyclopedia Volume One with John Skip, the great John Skip, and uh, and it's basically kind of we we want to kind of do uh, this era's version of you know just how the excitement you know when all of us were growing up as cult film fans of getting like the psychotronic guide or research is incredibly strange, you know, film book and, and stuff like that. And um, we have a really good mix of titles. Uh, you know, there's like newer films like John is, you know, he's written about like the neon demon and it follows as well as like Barton Fink um, where of course me being me, all the really obscure ones <laughs> And all the really sleazy ones are mine. Surprise! <laughs> I, I know it's a shocker. Uh, but I, for one, am offended. I oh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yes, but uh, 
yeah, but some of my chapters are ranging from everything from Nicholas Rogue and Donald Camille's performance uh, in the first three films of Hordorowski to the Pretty Peaches uh, trilogy by Alex Dorenzi, um, and of course Cafe Flesh because because uh, it's Stephen Sadie, and of course I have to have a Cafe Flesh chapter in there. But um, so yeah, we have a great mix of stuff, and there'll, there'll definitely be more information. We're shooting for a November release, uh, but we'll have more details. Um, coming out here probably the next month or two terrific well thank you again guys for coming on the show it was great talking about this movie with you i like that we talked a little bit more than the running time but this film so deserves it and really people you have to check this one out so uh, go on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about the film i'll have some links hopefully to the right version to see you also find links over to sam and heather's stuff and you also find links over to itunes where you can rate and review the show and to patreon where you can make a donation to the show donors get early access to every episode as long as i'm not running late every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world. San Antonio, it's really good to see you. It's been a while, but you've been on my mind. I've seen your rolling hills and winding rivers So clear that I could almost make them mine I can almost see the old Bandera Highway Stretching out toward Old Mexico and the times we used to walk down by the river Now it seems like such a long, long time ago San Antonio, it's really good to see you It's been a while, but you've been on my mind Sitting here and looking out the window Thinking just how good things used to be Well, I might be coming back to only memories Over oh, San Antonio, sure look We 
should get jackets made. We should get like Joe Spinell fan club biker jackets made. Oh my god, they could totally look like the Scorpio Rising jackets. Like, yes, yes. Oh my god. Okay, we have goals now. Um, that's that's a little bit better than me about to quote Sandy Good. So thank you, Mike, for. <laughs> Bringing up Joe's girls and Sam and I taking it to a Kenneth Anger route as opposed to LA burning to the ground. <laughs> and maybe it can be it can be like that that Sinbad movie that everyone claims is real but isn't. We can start telling people that there's actually a Joe Spinell Jason Miller buddy comedy and they just haven't seen it. It's hard to find. <laughs> it's yeah. But it's out there. Yeah, yeah. We've heard there's a print that's been found in Peru, but we haven't been able to secure sources just yet. I think they used to sell it like a really shitty 12th generation copy through Video Search in Miami. <laughs> it had like Brazilian. It was subtitles. in Hungarian with Brazilian subtitles. That's what I heard. Yeah. Oh my god! Wait, yeah. wait. Was Eli Wallach in this? <laughs> I think he was. He could play. He could play Joe Spinell. He was dad. the captain. <laughs> Oh my god, I this I, w- I wish this speaking of dreams, uh this is all a, the most beautiful of dreams right here. <laughs> but, that's what this movie inspires. Oh, that's the thing. it's actually so perfect too because it's you it's hard to do. I think it would be really funny to do like a six degrees of ninth configuration podcast where <laughs> <laughs> Where every episode has to do with someone involved, you could go on forever. Just Richard I know. Himself. Oh my, my god. god! Well, and it's because like a- I'm surprised I didn't make a scarecrow joke when you were talking about the. Oral <laughs> <rape> <laughs> well, and he he's also in my brain is struggling to remember what it is. It might be the sword and the sorcerer. He he's in. Yes, yes, yes. he's so good in that. <laughs> yes. That was my first time seeing him because I saw The Sword and the Sorcerer probably four times at the movie theater. That's when I was amazing. A kid. I love that movie. Why is that not on Blu ray? I don't know. And I don't know why I haven't done an episode. Oh, of that you one should. Yet. And you should bring Heather and I back. Yes. Yes. Do it. Is Richard Mull in that? Am oh, I my God. That? Yes. He is. And also, Albert Pyun, who directed it, is amazing and is on Facebook and I'm sure would be happy to talk about it. <gasps> well, I don't want to bring this conversation down but i'm going to anyway he is not doing too well health wise so maybe he's bounced back a little bit and i think that he has because he keeps posting updates about what he's doing with his latest picture but yeah for a little while there when i was trying to set up an interview with him um his partner cynthia was just like no albert's not doing real well so but uh, I need to see because I still want to do a radioactive dreams. Oh, yes. I still want to do a nemesis. I would love to do a sword and the sorcerer. I mean, the guy's got Everything. so many amazing movies. Did he oh. direct cyborg? Yes. The original cyborg. And he's got his director's cut out. there. Oh too. my God. I need to see that. I haven't Damn. seen the director's cut. That was always one of my favorite Van Damme films as it's a kid. It's so good. I know. Like this. Wow. Well, if Albert Pion listens to this, we hope you're, you're doing better, sir. We love you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, keep please keep kicking ass because we we need we need all the kick ass filmmakers we can get. Barry Devorzan agreed to an interview for the show, and then when I tried to get him, he never got back to me, and I was like, okay. But I've got that thing on my email where I can actually see when people read my emails, so I know he was getting them, but he just never responded. Scott Phillips, 
I also talked to his person. His person said, okay, I'll forward it on to Scott. And he just never got back to me. And I kept saying like, hey, I'm not trying to be a pest. I'd love to get him on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll talk to Scott. I, I haven't heard from him lately. So hopefully he's not pinned under a fridge someplace or anything. But so I managed to, and I hope that folks are okay with this. I managed to get Stacy Keach for this oh, episode. Oh, yeah. So, Hopefully that works. With Which you. is so, so insane. I want to write him like sort of a revised version of the love letter from the beginning of the ninth, <laughs> ninth conversation <laughs> and be like, P.S. I am not an ugly woman. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that is incredible. And that's, man, Stacy Keach. Well, yeah, we should all, we should, all three of us should write him a love letter, but wait till after <laughs> we get this episode. So Mike, yeah, you don't have, he one. might be creeped out. <laughs> He seems to have a lot of slack. I think I think he could he could roll with it. That he agreed to be on the show. I mean that that shows you that he he's got a good sense of humor yeah. about himself. Yeah, and he can be so funny too because I I love him in both Up and Smoke and Nice Dreams, especially when he starts turning into a lizard in the latter. <laughs> and real quick, because I meant to mention this, we were talking about Neville Brand. Whenever I watch this film and see him, and it, it blows my mind to think that just like a handful, a tiny handful of years before this, he was in Eaten Alive, the Toby Hooper. Oh God, I forgot about that. Because he is a he is a, well, he's amazing at everything. But I mean, you see him in Eaten Alive, and it's like oh. Oh my god. Oh See, my seriously, god. someone needs to do a six degrees of ninth configuration podcast. <laughs> it would last several years. At this it, point. it would. Oh my gosh. Because just any any of the character actors. I'm surprised that Timothy Carey wasn't in this. I think that was the, like one of the few that was missing. Because <laughs> they had almost every great character actor. Like all they're missing was Timothy Carey, you know, Seymour Cassell, Rip Torn. Like Well, Rip Torn so Rip Torn gets a mention and I <laughs> Yeah, he gets several mentions in the script. It's amazing how often he gets. His oh, so you could out. you could feasibly include Rip Torn's films in your Six Degrees of Night configuration. Absolutely. Well, his whole thing in Norman Mailer's Maidstone would actually, I think, fit very well with a lot of the plays within plays and role playing in um in Night configuration. Actually, very very much so. You know, Neville Brand worked four times with Graydon Clark. He worked with them in High Riders, Angels Brigade, uh, Without Warning, and The Return. I mean, he was a regular for Graydon Clark. Just just contemplate that for a little while. Oh, my while God. Too. Why wasn't he in Joysticks? <laughs> I don't so know. Sad. Oh, my God. You imagine him in Joysticks? Oh, my. Come on. That... <laughs> my brain's going to grind to a halt. Put this one out there. I don't think he's ever appeared in a movie with Joe Don Baker, so I wonder if those two have ever been in the same room. What if they hate each time. other? It's like getting <laughs> two fish, like two like breeds of fish, that will eat each other in a tank. Oh. <laughs> there's feud episode. There's feud. <laughs> you know, it's funny with the ninth configuration. Does anybody else think that like there was so much like male brilliant energy that women in the villages got pregnant nearby, just like 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 immaculate conception? <laughs> You know, like oh, like, that could be the sequel. It could be, <laughs> it could be an all women sequel about the nearby village where everyone. Ooh. It's like Village of the Damned, except everyone just right. wakes up knocked up, and they have no idea why. <laughs> they have babies, and they come out looking like Jason Miller and Ed Flanders. <laughs> <laughs> little baby Neville Brand running around. You know there's got to be at least yeah. one baby version of nutso Robert Loggia. <laughs> like, yes. Like, why does this baby have blackface on? Like, oh, we, we'll explain it later. 
<laughs> you have to see the movie. Yeah. I think Neville Brand Babies in general has a good ring to it. Just Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who's looking at Neville Brand now?
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.